Welcome back to the Franchise Guys podcast. This week we are finishing up our examination of Aliens, the 1986 classic directed by James Cameron. I'm John Evans and I'm joined as always by Vikram Wheat and Michael T. Kuchek. Mike, how are you doing this morning? Excellent. Are you filled with the joy of life? Uh, my cup runneth over. <laughs> and you, Vic? Uh, well, I'm apparently calling in from the bottom of a cave, so I'm a little <laughs> sad about that. We are back, and we're going to get very specific and scene-by-scene scene as we go through Aliens here. And without further ado, I, I think we should just get started. Opening title sequence, any thoughts? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I mean, actually, it is interesting that you know the opening scene... The first thing that we see is it's extremely reminiscent of the first things that we see in First Alien. Is It's a cold and quiet ship that kind of wakes up on its own. Yeah, there are a lot of parallels between the beginning of this movie and Alien, the end of this movie, the end of Alien, which I guess you see a lot with sequels, but the film is bookended with similar imagery. In this opening scene of Ripley's rescue by this salvage team, you don't see any human characters immediately. There's these two robots that come and open the door up before any human beings deign to enter. And it's a welder and a scanner that we see. And the welder thing kind of like cuts through the door and then the scanner cranes in in this sort of creepy technological probe kind of a way. I just remember thinking how technologically advanced humanity has become at this point when I saw the film for the first time because these robots are impressive but very cold and, and clinical. But then the human beings come in and the first thought that they basically express, the only thought is, well, there goes our salvage guys. Like her being alive, <laughs> her being alive seems to have something to do with them losing the right to their salvage. And it's funny because it kind of keeps going the idea of Parker and Brett's shares and even what Burke is trying to do. Everyone in this universe wants their piece of the pie was consistently reminded of a Robocop. I, I mean, in mm -hmm. terms of the corporate cynicism on display and also the materialistic selfishness expressed by a lot of the characters, to a certain degree in the last one and definitely in this one, it really feels like Robocop in space, just minus kind of goofy, Judge Dreddish humor. Yeah. Well, no, so absolutely. I'll, I'll point out that what the scene reminded me of was the Spielbergian trick of the light moving through some kind of fog, uh, and I always remember specifically Jaws when they find Ben Gardner's boat and, uh, you know, the searchlight sort of pans through everything. There's certainly, uh, Cameron has some, some visual influences as well that we get right out of the gate. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But and it's it, also got, like, kind of a Terminator feel to it. I mean, the, the robots that you just mentioned, John, they feel like the kind of thing that, hmm. you know, Michael Bean would actually be machine gunning at in another movie. <laughs> yeah, there is a Skynet kind of quality to it that you're right. It's probably not a coincidence here. And I do like how long the scene plays. Like I remember as a kid just thinking it took forever to watch that laser beam slowly penetrate the entire circumference of this door. And it is a really long film and it really breathes. It lets scenes 
breathe. But again, as I said last week, I mean, I think that the pacing is fantastic despite the length of the movie. I mean, it's reminiscent of The Shining in which, you know, it feels like a sprawling, breathing, slow-paced kind of film. But when you actually, like, look at the time, it's actually not that bad. It's actually clicking right along. The actual time of a scene and the feel of it are kind of two different things. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, if you put that scene on a clock, the, the, what I'm talking about, like how long it takes for the robot to cut through the door, it's it's just a few seconds, yeah. but it feels longer. And I think totally it does continue some of the feeling of the first movie. I know we talked about the overlapping and stuff, but one of the associations that I have with Alien in my head more than Alien is that Alien is full of these long, kind of languorous takes down hallways and machines waking up and sort of fading into the people waking up and that sort of stuff. Those are long, slow, easy takes. And even as we see with Blade Runner later, I mean, Ridley Scott loves to have his camera linger over the special effects, really sort of let you take it all in. And I that's not visually the way I think of James Cameron, but watching the movie, you sort of look at the opening in particular and some of the other shots. He is capable of that same maintaining some continuity totally between the films by letting the camera linger over those scenes, especially early on. Overall, in terms of general filmmaking, I mean, this really feels like a synthesis between the things that make Cameron famous as a filmmaker. He really took a look at the first movie, and he wasn't trying to reinvent that wheel. He was just trying to kind of absorb the things that are interesting and cool about the first film. And we get a lot of callbacks, both visually and in terms of subject matter. It's like, he definitely was working off a checklist of, you know, let's include this, let's include that, but also, like, let's kind of include a feel from the first film. And so when shit really goes down, and in terms of the military and whatnot, it's a hard left turn that brings that much more attention to it. Yeah, definitely. The next scene has Ripley waking up at Gateway Station and it appears, based on her dialogue with the nurse here, that it's the first time she's had her wits about her whatsoever. She's asking, where am I? And doesn't remember previous conversations. But it's also a disorienting sequence on another level because we come to find out that this interaction itself is a dream. Yeah, she's dreaming about a conversation that she's already had in real life. Yeah, exactly. It feels like she's been... Uh, reliving moments like this, like Burke telling her how long she was out there in this sort of cycle while she's been in this hospital room of being awake and then having nightmares and being awake and having nightmares. And the lines have been very blurry. Two things get established in that scene is, uh, you know, we we kind of remind the audience of the threat of the alien because we're not going to see them for like another hour or so yet. It's true. It's like, you know, Cameron very swiftly takes the opportunity to go, this is the main antagonist of the film, this is the bad guy, and this is what's so horrible about them. But also, when the chestburster is attacking Ripley and trying to get out, we get a very minor taste of Horner's, uh, that horn section that kind of keys into the action beats later on. We get a little taste of things that we won't see for another hour or so yet, but it's the setup that pays off later. It's a classic horror movie trick, I think, that You have to get a good scare in early before you start setting up your plot, your narrative, your characters, and getting up to the good stuff. But usually you find, I think, in in almost every horror movie that I can think of, 
we get some of the backstory out of the way, it feels like an organic fashion, but also gets a good scary scene. And once we come out of that, we're already, we've already got her awake and we, we are able to piece together some of what's happened. So it gets us through to where we want to get to a little faster. Yeah, yeah, even I, though I, I it is daring to play this mind game with the audience of what really happened embedded within a dream. You always want to have at least one beat that's kind of a statement of intention at the top of the film. This is what this movie is going to offer. If it's comedy, it should be funny in the first couple of minutes, blah, blah, blah. Scene very smoothly introduces Burke. He's definitely like kind of a corporate slickster, semi-fratty, douchey kind of a guy. But at the same time, he's expressing concern for welfare, like he realizes that it's a delicate subject to bring up. He's not Hudson. Well, it's interesting because I, I watched that part of it very closely when he realizes that he has to be the one to break this news to Ripley, that she's been out there for 57 years. Right. And you can see on his face, he's peeved at that. He's like, oh, crap, I have to be the one to, to say this. So, yeah, I yeah. mean, it's Aren't hinting. there psychologists who do this? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's hinting at his true nature, even though I do really like the first line that he delivers here where he's like, I work for the company, but don't let that fool you. I'm really an okay guy. Yeah. And he immediately knows that to anybody who runs into somebody from the company, that he's going to be this villainous stooge. Like, you know, it's like generally if you have to tell people that you're cool, you're not cool. <laughs> right. <That's> right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But he is acknowledging the reputation that the company might have to its own employees. And speaking of the company, as you know, it's referenced here in many other places. It's interesting that, the shorthand is such that you just call it the company and it suggests the monolithic power of this institution. I mean, we know that it's got its fingers in a lot of pies, but it probably is the preeminent mega corporation or conglomerate in the universe at this point. That's kind of the implication. At least in this section of space. Sure. But yeah. I, I mean, it, it is definitely of interest how this entire scene plays out. The thing that keeps coming back to me, especially in Act 1, is for Ripley, all of the events of the first movie are immediate. Like, she closed her eyes and she opened her eyes up. All of her crewmates died, like, within the past 24 hours, so far as her psyche is aware. So when she's standing in a corporate boardroom and they're treating it like it's old news and they're calling it her story in a question and the entire thing, she's like... If you were, like, the final girl in a Friday the 13th movie and then, like, you go to sleep and the next day you wake up, it's 50 years later, and everyone's like, Vor Jason Voorhees, what? You're like, <laughs> are you nuts? This dude chopped everybody up, man. Well, it's hilarious that three and a half hours into this inquest, she's still hearing from them well, you sat down on the planet for reasons unknown and you blew up the ship for reasons unknown. And she's like, not for reasons unknown, because yeah. you know we know what she's been telling them for the last three and a half hours. And they can't even get past that or the fact that the ship had a forty two million dollar in adjusted dollars value. The dollar values that get thrown around in this movie are endlessly humorous. There's almost like an Austin Powers factor to it, where it's like, right. yeah, this 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 massive Death Star sized ship, forty two million dollars. <laughs> what a yeah, it's like when they're on there, it's just like, yeah, this giant colony machine that can terraform a planet. 
this is a multi-million dollar operation, guys. <laughs> You're absolutely that's right. How much, that's you how much the last buyer paid for, for uh, Blockbuster was like $42 million. <laughs> Whoa, $42 million? Yeah. yeah, maybe they had some well, serious deflationary pressures on their currency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> went back to the gold standard in those 57 here. I do like, though, in that inquest scene in particular, I think it shows a lot of how, on, on some level, I think how Sigourney Weaver has grown as an actress, but also the changes that have occurred in Ripley. I mean, I think it, it reminds me of the scene where she's arguing with Parker that we talked about, where she... Yasa Koto sort of needled her until she blew up, that she really had to practice assuming command of the room. And so when she gets to this scene, you know, she really is the person who survived that alien. She is the person that she was by the end of the first film. I think there's a, a clear transition that you see in her performance from the beginning of the first movie. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah the, the other thing too is, I, I mean, she's definitely someone who who speaks exactly her mind. She's not afraid of confrontation. She actually just survived by the skin of her teeth this incredibly hazardous scenario. I was watching Burke, and he spends the entire scene kind of every time she gets a little brusque or direct or she gets aggressive. Like he's flinching, he's rolling his mm-hmm. eyes. He's like, oh, uh, I wish that she, you know, because I mean, he's very much a character who's used to like sitting in these boardrooms and toadying to whoever's sitting mm-hmm. at the at the head of the table. He's not, you know, the idea that this woman is coming in and being like, are you stupid? You are wrong. It's completely yeah. getting under his skin. Well, and he seems to be fulfilling some kind of representative capacity on her behalf in the scene. Like the way that you kind of, everything is played is that you think that Burke is kind of like her lawyer in this situation and he's flinching on her behalf, but also because he is associated with her. Yeah. I, and again, just like Robocop, we have scenes in which like a bunch of like kind of corporate stooges are gathered around a long table in a conference room discussing in this blithe manner, the lives and deaths of people who died in a violent way. But you notice, too, that Burke didn't... I think Burke could have told her about the terraforming colony before this scene and didn't. Yes. He almost tees her up to look ridiculous, which is something that, especially when you look at the some of the stuff that came out of the director's cut, because he's the one who calls in and has them go look for the aliens. You You wonder if he wanted her to come across as crazy so that no one else would look for again the rights with salvage rights whatever well yeah he Um, references in his big explanation late in the film that if he hadn't kind of played it this way if he had sent in the proper authorities then the rights issue becomes very muddied and because nobody gets right exactly yeah so he's handling it just to lock up he has sole power over this discovery in terms of again we're talking about statement of intention that opening scene, the very first line of dialogue is a dude bitching about them losing their salvage. Apparently, their fortunes to be won and lost if you can dig up something in space and bring it back, and you're definitely the person who controls it. Yeah, you know? as long and as other, the chain of title is clear. And it's yeah. salvage or an alien, and you know, if people have to fucking die along the way, then, you know, so yeah, in fact, even better because there are fewer names on the contract. Exactly. So, a couple fun little details of this scene 
Of course, the immortal line, did IQs just drop sharply while I was away? (laughs) (laughs) And then she grabs the papers up from the desk, and you can see someone flailing their hand trying to grab those papers back from her. They're like, hey, those are important. Don't crumple those up. Yeah, yeah. And again, yeah, she was just in a life and death scenario against an unknown life form. And, you know, she's spent the last three and a half hours listening to people bicker about. And by the way, this is like really smart writing. Cameron obviously sat down and looked at the first film and said, you know, all the proof got blown up. The alien itself got shot out into space. The ship got blown up and the computer on it. Outside of any records on their end. Any corroboration has been lost to the vacuum of space. So it's really easy to have the corporation kind of go, yeah, well, you can't prove it. And it is this sort of bullshit, corporate, empty-headed attitude is evidenced when Van Leeuwen says – there have been people there for over 20 years and they never complained about any hostile organism. Yeah, I, I think Burke doesn't mention it because it's very need-to-know-ish kind of things. He's very much operating in a world in which, like, you're not supposed to tell anybody anything unless you absolutely have to. Yeah. Like, you know, he, he winces at the fact that he has to tell her that she's been in space for 57 years. He doesn't tell her about the terraforming thing. She even has to confront the guy, you know, the corporate dude, on the way out right. the door. I immediately dove to IMDb because that actor has a very Brian Cox-ish feel to him. I'm like, is this Brian Cox? And, um, <laughs> no, it's, it seems like he was, he was like a British TV actor. He's got a ton of stuff. Like he was an episode of Thunderbirds where he plays like a young doctor in a Hammer or Dracula movie. He's very much a character, day play-ish kind of guy. Well, he does a good American accent. Yeah, he's great. I only presume that he's British because it's Hammer Horror, Thunderbirds. Well, I do know when they cast this film, they were looking for Americans living in London. That was sort of what they were going for so that, you know, you would seem American. uh, You were new to the UK. So maybe at that point he still had his American accent, but whatever. Anyway, like the point of the line that he, he drops there to me is that it's indicating that they are still thinking that they would just get a complaint about this. Like the colonists would say, Hey guys, there's this hostile organism here. It's really annoying us. Can you do something about it? Thanks. <laughs> to a certain degree, it does kind of make sense. It's kind of, you know, I mean, you send a bunch of people to a desert Island and they've been there for not 20 days, 20 fucking years. And it's like nothing's eaten them since. And you're telling us that you landed on that desert island and like instantly like your entire crew got eaten. So it's a little fishy. True. Very true. So the next scene begins with this image of Ripley's hand holding a cigarette. And the way that her fingers are dangling, it really evokes a face hugger to me. Did you guys have the same feeling. That's interesting. No, I didn't pick up on that, but I know exactly the image you're talking about, and I certainly see that. Yeah, just the way was, her I fingers too, dangle. As an ex-smoker, I was too taken with the image of her cigarette and the, the ash about to fall <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm just like, damn, guy, ash, that thing. Yeah, I, I you know. Back, back when I was smoking, if there was like a millimeter of ash, that would drive me nuts. It's like having your fingernails too long. It's well, like, that kind of represents then that that's how out of it she is. You know, no, like, sure. No, it's a, it's a perfect physicalization of her character at that moment. Yeah, her deep in this tormented reverie. See, here's kind of something else that occurred to me while I was rewatching this film is, uh, you know, the last time we were talking about aliens, uh, we were kind of touching on the invasive nature of this. It's not like a, you know, Jason Voorhees would run up to you and chop off your head. 
And these things can bite you and kill you, but far, far worse is they grab you and haul you off and they invade you. They, ch- you know, they, they get inside your body. What's stress in this film is they also get inside your mind. Ripley is haunted by these dreams that are established within the first five minutes of the movie. When she meets up with Newt later, and Newt complains about scary dreams. Later on, when, when they're kind of taking a nap together, you know, Newt is kind of flinching at you know, what's yes. going on in her head. And uh, Ripley even wakes up. And avoids getting face hugged because uh, she she kind of startles out of a dream herself. And then yeah. at the very end, like the capper is, they're going to sleep well. You know, the, the, the implication is that they've banished their their nightmares. So yeah. the dream thing and the idea of being haunted by these nightmares and exercising those demons is really important to this film. Absolutely. It's Absolutely. Like, I, 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 if you can't get a good night's sleep, I, I, your, your life. No, I, I seriously, I, yeah. I, if you yeah. can't sleep, your life gets really shitty really fast. Very and true. Uh, these things get inside your body. They get inside your head. It's interesting you mentioned demons, that they're like demons and that they are invasive. They change who you are and destroy you from within. And unlike demons, there isn't like a cackling fun to it you know like they're not enjoying themselves i mean they're just or they're they're like ants or wasps like a virus they just get into you and fuck with you and you become something different that like a cancer yeah and the success of these films is so largely tied to this creature that they created in the first film part of the reason that we buy that as an audience in the characters is because the creature is so fucked up because what it does to you is so fucked up. Like, you could take the, the Beast with a Million Eyes or some other sort of 1950s version of this and make a sequel and have characters be haunted and have nightmares about it, and it wouldn't work as well. Like, it works because of what that creature does to you. Because those nightmares, because we get a version of that nightmare right off the bat, and it's horrifying. We understand why she wakes up every night and her sheets are soaked with sweat. Like, we live that nightmare with her. The worst thing about the xenomorph is it drags you farther down the evolutionary ladder. If you look at the world of insects and spiders and crustaceans, there there are creatures that do shit like this to each other. As human beings, as conscious minds, we, we should hope that we're like far above that level of the food chain. What, what the xenomorph does is it drags us all the way down to the bottom of the food chain with it. You know, it's, so it's, it's like, like that wasp that will inject a neurotoxin into a tarantula, paralyze the tarantula, drag the d- spider back to its little lair, and then lay its eggs. When the yes. eggs hatch, the babies devour the still living tarantula alive. You yeah. look at something like that and think that that is really nasty, that aspect of the animal kingdom. Then we, as you said, Mike, yeah, like, can you imagine human beings enduring something like that? And it's just such a disturbing concept. There is a wasp out there that's so horrible that it will make you feel sorry for a tarantula. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Well, John, I, that's actually, John, that's an interesting point because for as alien as the alien feels, I wonder if part of the reason that we're able to buy it is because there is some connection there is some parallel even in the natural world on earth it's not quite the same that you know it doesn't have the jaws within the jaws or anything but there's there's lots of instances of, of creatures like that i mean it talked about the zombie ants the spores that wind up the ant inhales and it causes the ant to climb the tree digs its 
its mandibles into the tree, and then the spore grows out of the ant's head. Like, that really happens. And so I wonder if part of what allows us to buy into this universe is that as alien as it is, there are some terrestrial parallels to it. Well, this is kind of why when we were talking with Friday the 13th, we had this discussion in a general sense that, for instance, Mike can really get into supernatural horror and isn't as into the guy with the knife or whatever, just, you know, showing up because he thinks, well, yeah, the guy with the knife is more real. But if he showed up at my door, I could just kick his ass or I would just get out the back door or whatever. Meanwhile, for me, I think it's much, much scarier than something that I know is 99.9% impossible, but a guy really could show up at my door. Well, in this case, a biological entity out there in the vastness of space where you have all of these potential evolutionary tracts, this could potentially exist. You buy into it, and that does make it a lot scarier. It's almost the best of both worlds. Yeah, because they are making something up, but at the same time, they're selling you on it that it could be real. So Burke and Gorman show up and they basically convince her uh, or try to convince her. They don't convince her to come out there with them as an advisor. And the carrot is, well, you know, you can be reinstated as a flight officer so you don't have to go do manual labor in the cargo docks anymore. And yeah. she does not go for it. That is the first offer that kind of gives her a hook, though. Like, like she yeah. she still pushes it away up until that moment. She's been like, no, 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 fuck off, get out of here, blah, blah, blah. And that's the first thing that actually makes her kind of pause and think. You know, neither of these movies gives us actually a whole lot of backstory or psychological anything about Ellen Ripley. I mean, you know, very Pulp Fiction-esque in the sense that, like, we have to learn about this character just purely by her words and actions, and that's it, which is the best and most cinematic approach of anything. But it is interesting that, you know, she's definitely a woman who's driven by a sense of um, adventure on some level, action and adventure. You know, she's not sitting at home. She realizes that she's slowly wasting away in her studio apartment doing warehouse work. She wants to fly again. You're right. I mean, her eyes don't exactly light up, but you can kind of get the idea from her reaction that she would much rather go back out in space and be a flight officer than run loaders. After 57 years, isn't there a little more she has to do to get reinstated? Like, if you were a pilot from 1952, would they just be like, oh, okay, here's a a 747. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she right, wasn't yeah. a pilot. She was, you know, like, didn't she, have to, didn't she have to go back to school or something first? <laughs> the technological advances have been very slow, almost from 1979 to 1986 slow. It's a very short hop. Even from the first movie to this one, it's not suddenly there's nanobytes and everyone has smartphones. It's, it's all the same shit. Like, people still write stuff on pieces of paper. They still have synthetics, but I'm sorry, artificial humans. Uh, <laughs> I, I didn't mean to get on PC there for a second. But, um, the you can now take someone's business card and plug it into the phone and it will call them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's like that blew me away in 1986. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> no, 
So uh, Ripley asks Burke point blank when she calls him after another nightmare, are you going to bring them back to study or wipe them out? And of course, he's like, that's the plan. You have my word on it. And I kind of like that he gives himself the out there that, you know, he says, yes, that is the plan. <laughs> that's all he's but giving her. The plan her. might change. Exactly. But- and I just wanted to, one last note about the, the nightmare element that I thought was really cool. When she wakes up this time from the nightmare, and we don't see the nightmare, but we see her rubbing her chest, her sternum area, mm-hmm. as if she's still feeling the pain of her dream, the residual agony of having just, you know, had yet another chest burster come out of her in her dream. And I think That's it's exactly. really cool because, you know, after having seen that awesome harrowing dream from before you you know exactly what she just went through it's not just a psychic uh shock it's like she's feeling the chest burster come out of her it's like you know she's driven to go into space because she can't live like this anymore exactly it's like she's she's gonna have that very visceral no are you fucking nuts kind of reaction but she allows herself to get talked into it because she realizes that on some level, Burke is right. She can't stay. She can't do just this because it's just going to be she's in a hell of her own. So she makes the decision to go. And now we're on the Sulaco drifting through space with a reprise of everyone waking up from hypersleep kind of sequence. The Sulaco resembles a pulse rifle. It does. And yeah, it's like, yeah, I mean, as it's, you know, we get that one shot of it floating past the camera. And, uh, you know, it's basically like a, 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 a lengthy rectangle with a little thing at the very end hanging out of the bottom, you know, like like a trigger or, a, or a, you know, the hand grip. And it was like, oh, it's basically a giant pulse rifle flying through space. I think that was acknowledged in, you know, people talking about the design that they did kind of agree upon this design that resembles a gun. Yeah, for, from moment one, the military is here. We're shooting it. We're sending a gun to go shoot them. A day in the Marine Corps is like a day on a farm. Yeah. Every meal is a exactly. banquet. Every paycheck is a fortune. Every formation a parade. I love the Corps. <laughs> God bless Apon. That's so great. Yeah, he's a much younger guy than I thought. Like when you see him in special features and everything, at the time he looked quite a bit younger, and they sort of aged him up a little to make him look like he was, you know, the crusty old veteran. But of course, he is an actual veteran. Al Matthews was a uh, in the armed forces, and apparently he he kind of led the. Uh, training of the team like he sort of put them through the actors uh, he put them through something that was like his own boot camp experience so you really are getting that kind of he's a combination of more of a drill sergeant in a lot of ways than just the squad leader because he does get them motivated and everything or attempt to anyway <laughs> when burke goes to uh, uh ripley's apartment and try to talk her into uh, going on this mission uh, he brings along gorman who looks really spiffy in in his uniform you know he's very he's got like kind of that west point kid yeah. feel to him and when a guy like that is in full uniform he's in the room he's exuding you know the authority of the military i can guarantee you know, your safety Yes, exactly. Yeah. You know, it's like in this very clip fashion. He's got the buzz cut and everything. And you go, oh, yes, this is the most military that military can get. But then we've been actually, trained to deal with situations like this. Right. Yeah. 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 When yeah. The, the squad first wakes up, the first thing Vasquez does is she immediately goes to the pull up bar and she yeah. starts doing pull ups to kind of get her blood running and everything else. And she has like kind of a little conversation with, I think, Drake, in which she's like, oh, who's Snow White, blah, blah. And they're, they're kind of. 
you know, whispering to each other about who Ripley is and what her deal is. And um, Vasquez says that Ripley is pretty. Yeah, she says muy bonita under her breath at the end of that little conversation. So what I did was I immediately paused the movie and I googled Vasquez Ripley fan fiction to see, <laughs> to see if, if, if that relationship had ever been explored. To my endless surprise, the answer is no. Wow. Lot, got lots of Drake and Vasquez. Hmm. But apparently, uh, no, no one got imagined enough. So, uh, you know, I, I think um, this might be a job for Pandora Lancaster. <laughs> you know, I alluded to this last week, guys, that when I, you know, hinted at this, that in my teenage brain, I put all of these scenarios through how they might you're be played just, out. You're, just running, you're running pairings. <laughs> oh, yeah. Pharaoh the pilot was sometimes involved. There were a lot of shower scenes in my imagination. <laughs> Yeah, apparently she saw an alien once. <laughs> I love that yeah, line. I love that dismissive. Yeah, she saw an alien once. <laughs> you know, again and again throughout the, throughout the next couple of scenes, as we're kind of meeting the squad and watching them interact, Vasquez is a character who's consistently rewarded for making smart ass comments. She says something, and especially Drake, because they're they're kind of the two heavy weapons coordinators on the squad. But like everyone else. She gets like a lot of high fives and everyone laughs. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. But then when they're kind of doing the rundown and everyone's kind of like dismissing Ripley because she's not quite there, Vasquez gives off like one of her smart ass lines and this time Ripley like shuts her down. Yeah. It's like, I, I hope you're right. And Vasquez, she shuts her mouth and listens mm-hmm. to, to her credit. But I think she's also, she's not used to getting shut down like that. Yeah. Well, and you're, I think you're, you're setting up what you're setting up in these early scenes. And again, it's every scene, it's such smart, efficient writing in all of these scenes. But what you're setting up is a dynamic where you've got these super confident, hardcore Marines who are skeptical of Ripley and try to make her feel small and they don't believe her setting up this dynamic where they're the big dogs and she's the little dog. And as soon as the aliens come, you know, I mean, she's she's Cassandra trying to warn them of what's going to happen. Yeah, they and treat her like a hysterical get, female is how they treat her, yeah. like a hysterical female. And again, as soon as they, you know, when we get to the big rescue scene after they have their first battle with the aliens and she rescues them, it flips completely. And all of a sudden, again, Ripley acknowledges that Hicks is in charge, but she's the one calling the shots. And that, I mean, part of the reason that that's so effective, and I think that we get so behind Ripley as a heroine, is because of how they set up the dynamic in these early scenes. I think it has more to do with her civilian nature than anything else. It's yeah. like, I and mean, they're a little dismissive of Burke as well. We have an inter- a mission in which civilians and military are intermingled. There's going to be a little conflict there. And it's like, you know, well, I, like for instance, it's like when Ripley, when they're loading up and Ripley's like, you know, I, I'm, I feel like a fifth wheel. Is there anything I can do? I don't know. What can you do? And she's like, I can run that loader. And when she runs it, Opone and, and Hicks are, they're pleasantly surprised. They will, mm-hmm. please. This is a squad in which there's gender parity. It's not that she's a woman. It's that she's a civvy. There's also the fact, I think, the notion that they're on another bug hunt. She's not, oh, she saw an alien once. She's not the first person who sends them on a wild goose chase in search of, uh, you know, E.T. It continues the dynamic that's set up in that boardroom where the company is telling her, look, we don't believe you. Well, so she listen, gets out in the space with the Marines, and the Marines are like, look, we don't believe you. We think you're full of shit. 
Let's talk about the bug hunt, which we were kind of touching on the last time we spoke about this film. I don't think that they're referring to aliens specifically. I, I think they're referring to any mission in which it's like a guerrilla scenario. The yeah, because I mean, Hudson says, "Is this a stand-up fight or is it just another bug hunt?" But like we've talked about before, this isn't a universe in which they have like a zoo full of alien creatures. You know, the the idea of a, an alien presence being out there is something that everyone kind of rolls their eyes at and doubts. But the term bug hunt is so ingrained in their military that we've got a bug stomper on the side of their the drop ship. If they're fighting aliens all the time, they would talk about like they fight aliens all the time, but they don't. They they react to aliens like like it's a ghost story. You know, you know? Uh, James Cameron made every member of the cast read, or at least you know he encouraged them strongly to read Robert Heinlein's Starship Troopers. And I think uh, that was one of the influences for him. And I think there's little echoes of that. I haven't read the book, but obviously I've seen the movie. I think there are little echoes of that throughout this. And I think that that the battle against the bugs, literally they called them the bugs in Starship Troopers. Yep. I think that is informing this to a little degree. I think the idea of the bug hunt is any mission where they're chasing shadows, you know, right. and yes. 90% of the time it doesn't go anywhere. That's kind of the uber point that I'm trying to make. And also just as a little piece of Michael T. Kuchak trivia, Starship Troopers is the first adult book I remember reading. Wow. That was the first one where my dad was, I think it's time for you to like read big kid books now. Why don't you start off with this one? It was your 18th birthday present. Yeah, I, <laughs> I went straight from Clifford the Big Red Dog <laughs> at 17 years and 360 days to Robert Island Starship Troopers on my 18th. Uh, so we get the, go ahead. I was just going to say, Mike, that's funny. I had never really thought about that, but I absolutely remember that Midnight by Dean Coons was my first grown-up book. Hmm. So we we get the intro of the power loader here. Uh, Ripley has a Class 2 rating. That must be pretty good because she's very uh, adroit with this thing. I noticed that there's some kind of emblem on either it's her shoes or, you know, somehow the foot pad that you put your foot into to operate the loader. It says Reebok on it, which I found kind of interesting (laughs) because you don't really see any other direct reference to brands that exist today in my memory in this whole series. But Reeboks, they made it all the way. (laughs) Yeah, they they made it through the corporate wars. (laughs) The franchise wars. They were on the other side. It was Waylon Utani versus Reebok Nike Empire. That's funny. (laughs) That's why the rooster has the giant shoes. They're Reeboks. They're giant Reeboks. (laughs) (laughs) To stomp the bugs. Oh, that's funny. I wonder if Taco Bell. They always get pumped, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so you you get the feeling with her operating the loader that she's been mastering this thing during her day job, and I kind of see it as maybe it was a distraction for her. She is a quick study, but you get the feeling that she really could forget her problems or her damaged psyche when she was just out there operating the power loader every day. It was an escape from her own mind, and I also think it's tremendously ironic that that whole time she's doing that, she's training to fight the queen without knowing it this is an a film that's full of excellent subtle smart setup and payoffs yeah yeah i mean throughout the entire first half of the movie set up this payoff that set up this payoff that i mean it's in in a very organic way it's never like she just jumps in that thing just for the fuck of it like it says something about her character that when we first meet her and she's like a second lieutenant 
on a cargo ship. She's very tech savvy. Very practical. Yeah. yeah. She's in her element doing stuff like this. She's very comfortable. And I think this is also a key beat in the little mini storyline of the Hicks-Ripley romance. Because you can see watching her do this impresses him. And it's a little bit of a turn on for him even is in the way that I interpret it. That he's looking at her and seeing what she's uh, capable of. That first beat of respect and interest I would here. say, in fact, as an overarching thing, it's the first scene in which she seems to be happy at all. Because I mean, right. even when they're having breakfast in the earlier beat, she's sitting there, she's quiet, she's by herself. She loses her shit when she realizes that Bishop is a synthetic. I'm sorry, artificial human. I'm sorry. <laughs> but yeah, Mike, like, we're going to get a lot of angry emails. Good girl. <laughs> it's a first beat in this whole movie in which she's happy. And optimistic and, and energetic. She's of use. She's doing something good. She's operating a machine and helping the team to accomplish a mission. In fighting, in fighting back a little bit against the perception that the Marines have of her. Again, like I was, like I was saying before, that she's established early on as frail, and everyone's rolling their eyes at her and everything else. So this is her, her the, the, the moment that she gets to say, "Look, I'm not pathetic. I'm not a weepy woman. I'm not crazy." Oh, yeah, the weepy woman thing, what I was referring to, it's when she breaks down trying to recount what happened to her and her crew. And it's Vasquez that jumps on her and is just like, hey, you know, all I need to know is where they are. And then, you know, Ripley shuts her her down on right back. Yeah, she pushes back because I mean, for the second time in this movie, she's stood in front of a a group of people trying to tell them what happened. And everyone's like, whatever. You know, the first time they're just like, uh, yeah, whatever. You know, there's no proof. Second time, like, they're actively teasing her and she pushes back. She's like, no, I hope you're right because I, uh, you know, these things, one of these things mastered my whole crew inside of 24 hours. So then, uh, Apone is firing up the troops, getting everybody ready. And it, to uh-huh. me, it, it seems absolutely badass. It seems like he's a football coach. And they are players getting ready for a game. That really is the dynamic and the energy of this scene. He's almost literally telling them to get their game faces on. And Hudson acts like a high school football player throughout the whole thing. The other cool thing about the breakfast scene is when Hudson is, you know, hey, Bishop, do that cool thing with the knife. It's like a little party trick. And then the other squaddies, they play this prank on him where they put – like, like he, he thought that he was going to get to be a spectator and make this, the, the artificial human do a cool trick for his amusement. But then his quote-unquote friends grab him and hold his hand down and they play a trick on him. Throughout the whole time, he goes, wait a minute, man, what's like? And he starts going, whoa, like he's on a roller coaster. Yeah. And it's play for laughs. It's, it's, it's kind of a funny beat. But we immediately get an insight that, like, when the shit goes down, he's going to lose his shit. Hudson is the apex of the inversion that we have with Ripley, that he is the most confident, the most arrogant, and falls, you know, and falls the furthest behind Ripley, who winds up being the bravest and the smartest. They, yes. That's a lot of what's being set up in that scene. It's all, almost too much, actually. I can't remember exactly how much of some of this was just in the director's cut, but I actually felt like some of him, again, in the director's cut I watched, him ranting and raving about all the different kinds of weapons they have and and that sort of thing. And I sort of thought, geez, you know, they're really hitting it a little too hard on the head. He's definitely meant to be comic relief. The, the other thing that kind of sets us apart from the first movie is it's a hard sci-fi 
horror movie for adults. And in this one, we get a little girl mascot. We get a funny guy who says kooky things. It's meant to, for a broader audience. It's also meant to kind of let you know this is supposed to be an action movie. This is the definition of a roller coaster ride. I mean, yes. like, I can't think of a film that better exemplifies that approach to the cinematic medium. So, yeah, Hudson is like, express elevator to hell, going down. And Ripley is obviously filled with dread about this. Um, Hicks is asleep. Uh, it, it really is revealing how everyone is acting in this scene. And you can see Gorman is already sweating. And Ripley notices that, which I think is really interesting. She's going through this harrowing, the literal drop of it is like an express elevator being dropped down a, a shaft. She notices while going through this for the first time that the lieutenant isn't looking so strong. And I think she notices him sweating and, and she questions how many missions or combat drops this is for him. Yeah, th- this yeah. is definitely a film that equates cool under pressure with heroism. After the aliens attack and, and a lot of people are killed, the dynamic is... Okay, who are your heroes? Newt, Ripley, Hex, Vasquez. Gorman has already proven that he's weak. Hudson becomes a source of antagonism. And and also Bishop, because Bishop keeps his cool. And you get these little beats with the characters like Drake being told that his camera isn't functioning. And in this kind of classic football player, dumb brute kind of a way, He just bangs the camera against the wall, and that fixes it. He's aggression waiting to be unleashed. (laughs) It's funny, but it's also classic macho bullshit, this beat. We saw that before with him. He's the one that harasses Hudson at the dinner table. Apone is annoyed that Hicks is asleep, which I think is kind of interesting. Somebody wake up Hicks. He's almost unprofessionally calm. <laughs> Hicks is more than any other, certainly any other character that survives past the, the 45 minute mark. Hicks has almost no journey. There's almost no wavering in how heroically stoic he is through the entire movie. That's why I've been thinking a lot about what I said in the last one about how Bill Paxton really gives the bravest performance in the movie because he starts off as the most radically sort of gung-ho, almost obnoxiously overconfident guy and winds up this, like, simpering Matt who, you know, wants to put a tutor or the, you know, newt in charge of the of the mission. You know, and by the way, it reminds me that Mad Magazine had its parody of this film in, in I, I 86. Remember, yeah. Yeah. And they rendered Hudson as, like, from the very beginning, he's just a giant bipedal chicken with a helmet on. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But Hicks is the absolute opposite of that. Now, Michael Michael Bean is is wonderful. I I think he gives a great performance. But as a character, he's just, you can even tell when Ripley points out that he's in charge, you can tell he's sort of reluctant. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Like, you know, it's not even like he wants to be in charge. Mm -hmm. He's almost too perfect of a uh, calm, cool male figure, and it's totally epitomized in this scene where he's asleep on the drop. He's just the total enlisted man without ambition just like a really tough loner kind of guy who really has no illusions about you know succeeding in the power structure of this society he's just like you know shows up smokes his cigarettes does his job and goes home 
Very, very similar to the crew of the Nostromo. This is a universe that's populated by either the corporate suits who are going to fuck you over if they get half a chance, or else you you have the people who are just turning the crank, doing the job, no matter how dirty it gets. And maybe you have like kind of a third set of outliers like the Deep Space Salvage Team, where they're kind of somewhere between those two poles. On the one hand, they've got cool robot arms and they bitch about their jobs, but on the other hand, like they're trying to make something happen. Hicks, I took as more of like a Snake Plissken kind of guy. There are enough characters who have arcs that we don't, that not everyone needs an arc. It's like he, he's just kind of yeah. this guy. He does change to the degree that he, he takes on some of the mantle of authority when called upon. One of the other really smart organic things that happens is in the course of the, the mission that gets a lot of people killed, not only is Gorman completely useless, but he also. It's almost comic that he's getting flailed around in the back of the of, it of is comic ground transport unit. Like I was actually thinking of that funny couple in Friday the Thirteenth Part Six where they get flailed around in the back of the, the RV. A, a shelf comes undone and he gets bonked on the head by a, an ammo crate or something like that. It's you fitting. Know, it's fitting for that character, but what it also does in terms of character function is it takes the commanding officer out of the equation. And the grunts and the civilians no longer have even a nominal authority figure to turn to, you know, or someone that they have to listen to. Now the grown-ups can talk. And it's interesting because even when Gorman comes to, it's not like he reassumes the mantle of authority. Mm-hmm. He gets up and there's like, hey, I mean, how are you doing? And he's like, oh, I got a hell of a hangover. And then Gorman steps into the hallway and he turns to the left and Vasquez is standing there at the end of the hallway and she's got a gun in her hand and she's just staring at him and camera keeps her out of focus but it, there's no mistaking who that is you know and they just look at each other and mm-hmm. that's great that's fucking cinema well you get the feeling strongly that she holds him responsible for drake's death among others exactly but we have to give her a big speech do we even need to shoot her in focus? You know, this Jimmy Cameron kid is going to do pretty well one of these days. He's got some chops. <laughs> <laughs> and it, well, again, it all, all of which set up and payoff sets up that, that magnificent moment when they blow each other up. Yes. Um, yeah. They have these, these nice little arcs. It's such smart, wonderful screenwriting. You can really see it's a miniature, the dropship, and sometimes Blu-ray is a curse because they actually have a little pilot in the dropship. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. I've, I've backed it up and watched it a couple of times, and it, it just looks like a painted doll, a little action figure. <laughs> and anyway, there's a very creepy piece of music over that, though. The mood is still very much a slow build, which I love. So they find that they still have power in this facility, Ripley observes. And you can see, as she says that, there's a kernel of doubt in her and hope. Like, oh, you know, maybe they're okay. Then Apone takes command and he's like, I want a nice clean dispersal this time, which tells you that he wasn't pleased with their dismount last time around as they left the APC. But again, it's a reminder that this is the kind of shit that he's thinking about. Like, he's not really that worried about anything really bad happening. He's just like, let's get the dispersal right on this one. <laughs> They've been through many, many, many missions together. It's a mm-hmm. well-worn squad, you know, and it's like, you know, they're, they're kind of nudging their performance along the way. And this way they, they really think that 
they're going to go in and everything's going to Yeah, they, they really, again, are not mentally prepared for what they're actually going into. You know, I mean, they go through the motions. There are a lot of motion going through. I mean, they load up their missiles and he gets them fired up. It's like, I mean, they're not slumping their way into this scenario. I mean, they're they're maintaining their professionalism about the yeah. thing. But it's like, yeah. It's Very like, true. I mean, that's why a poem gets a little annoyed with Hicks. They just like, you know, I, I realize this is like a low-grade mission, but I mean, just don't fucking fall asleep. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. So there's a spooky wind when they get out of the APC, and it reminded me of Planet of the Vampires quite a bit. You get the feeling that this is a, a haunted world. This this planet, uh, it's it's eerie, and you see that Bishop drives the APC. Hudson is the tech guy, and he's definitely not who I would have guessed to be a computer whiz. <laughs> I actually really like that choice, though. Dumber screenwriting and say that he's the guy who's wearing, like, glasses and he's a little nerdy. And Yeah, no, I mean, I buy it. It's just it's interesting that his personality doesn't lend itself to that specialty. He, he's not a nerdy guy, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's um, the point. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, 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 you know, it's a screenplay that's not going for the obvious choices. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they deploy in two squads. Apone is in charge of one. Hicks is in charge of the other. And each squad has a smart gun. Drake and Vasquez split up for this and you, you get to watch them work and they are very well organized, disciplined. You're impressed watching them work. You know, you're not thinking these guys are going in totally unprepared or half cocked. And then the creepy wind gives way to silence as soon as they get inside. And somehow that's much scarier than the wind was. There's a big neon bar. Yeah. Sign. Like they go in through the bar. <laughs> well, I don't know if they go in through the bar, but the bar is there. I remember before I saw this movie, I did see a trailer in the theaters as a kid. And I am convinced that it was basically just a bunch of shots from this sequence where they're working their way through exploring this dead colony and it was a very much a teaser for just the mood and the atmosphere of this film. And it blew me away at the time. One of the things that it struck me, it's been a couple of years since I, since I watched this, is I really thought going into this scene that this was when we had the first alien attack. And you forget, we've talked about the patience that Cameron brings to this. This is one of the perfect instances of that. Is I think if you had, if this is a Michael Bay movie, well, we've been here for 30 minutes, some shit better start blowing up. And instead, you have this much slower buildup that is, in some ways, reminiscent of the first film. Because the first thing we get isn't aliens. The first thing we get is the face hunters. Camera is smart enough to go, okay, from, from this point forward, the audience is expecting the aliens to pop out. And very intelligently kind of draws out the tension. We exactly. know aliens are going to show up. They start finding evidence of the horror movie that occurred before they arrived. And there's mm-hmm. something really fucking creepy about the entire thing, especially when you know they even see evidence of the aliens and starts clicking with the, the things that Ripley has told them, and they still don't 100% take it seriously. Someone when a, must have bagged one of Ripley's bad guys here. Yeah, or especially when almost absurdly they find holes in the flooring where the acid blood has leaked through multiple floors. And Hudson's response is to hock a lube down it. 
And Vasquez's response is to like give him a little shove and he goes quicker and around. <laughs> yeah. He's the high school jock there. And then he immediately looks to a pwn, telling on his teammate to the coach, like, come on, you can let her do that. This just dawned on me. You know, Hudson is almost the older brother from Weird Science grown up. He's he's chat with a gun. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Chat with a gun. <laughs> <laughs> There is a prequel here or a season of television in The Last Stand of Hadley's Hope. Mm. I would watch that. I would write that. Ooh. I would just love to be involved in that in any way. Yeah. Like just seeing, you know how it's going to turn out for these characters. Not well. But how many stories could you tell within that? So Vasquez takes point and she has a badass walk with that gun. It's such an amazing gun. I remember as a kid having just a complete nerdgasm to see a gun like that mounted on this gimbal arm. It's basically a steady cam rig, but it's also got yeah. like kind of a mechanic hydraulic type thing that, that reacts to her movements. And uh, if you'll notice, she's written adios on, yeah. on the stock. <laughs> it's great. And then motion tracker has this metronome sound that's so cool mm -hmm. and builds the tension as they explore this dead place, which is worse somehow that no one is around. Like there aren't bodies because it's such a creepy question to raise. Where are these people? I think that you get the, the shell casings and that they made, somebody made a last stand here and that the alien blood sort of, it takes this picture but you're still left with this question, what happens here? And I think you can see that it starts to raise the tension within the group because much like the audience, everything is left to their imagination to try and picture it. And what you're imagining in many circumstances might be worse than what actually happened. But in this case, it might actually not. Yeah. Well, yeah. you get these clues like the coffee and the half-eaten donut are clues uh -huh. that something happened very quickly. They find evidence of a blast and they kind of have a little discussion amongst themselves where it's like, uh, maybe it was a seismic charges. So, you know, kind of like the crew of the Nostromo, they were cobbling together whatever weapons that they could think of. That's where the blood, obviously, they did damage a lot of aliens with all this acid blood spraying around. The, the whole place reminds me of like a really unpleasant 1980s office building. Like, I feel like this colony would be a horrible place to live. It's more like a submarine than a town. How miserable would it be to be the guy getting drunk in that bar? <laughs> it's like, it's like you know, they had to fight a last stand. Obviously, a lot of colonists got taken before anybody realized what was going on metastasized, I think is the term. Those aliens came from somewhere. You know, someone had to look up and go, shit, where's the other 30 families? Where did they go? <laughs> oh, yeah. I would love to see how all of that played out. So Gorman is like, the area is secure at Ripley, and she knows that she's got a problem on her hands with this guy because the area is not secured. It's funny that Drake is superficially obedient with Gorman. It's like, yes, sir, no, sir. He's not really giving him any attitude at all. It's a military outfit. Ripley is the one who can stand up to him and does, you know, she's the one who acts out later on is able to say, you know, fuck you, Gorman, and do what needs to be done. The soldiers are all good soldiers all the way throughout, I think. Early on, after Ripley tries to give, you know, their, their advisory situation, Gorman steps forward and gives them a, a list of, you know, I want this and that done inside of seven hours and blah, blah, and everyone's kind of groaning and rolling their eyes. 
he's trying to assert his command by making these absurd demands. On he's on, trying on, to be a hard ass, trying to be a pawn when he grows up, but without mm-hmm. understanding the reality of their situation. So it's like, I want you to do this twelve-hour job inside of seven hours. Why? Just because I want to show you how big my dick is. Exactly. And, and everyone's just like, whatever, dude. That indicates his vision of being a good leader is not giving them the customary amount of time. But it's obviously just a flouting of his authority. Yeah, know, it serves no purpose. They, they reach it, the med lab and there's the signature music cue in the film. I would call it you hear when Ripley enters the med lab and sees the face huggers on ice in their stasis tubes. It's the defining cue of the movie. It's a little series of notes foreboding in this intense, almost mournful way, followed by kind of a rattle of symbols that has a more directly ominous sound. And Burke says, are those the same ones? And he, he gives Ripley this little double take look to me. It's like he's saying or thinking shit, she was right. Like he wasn't entirely sure that he believed her until now. The acid damage you would think would be definitive, but actually seeing the creature that she described, it's like shit just got real. These colonists went through the exact same series of steps as the crew of the mm-hmm. Stromo. Someone got facehuggers on them. They tried to remove them. In their case, they actually killed someone to do it, but they kept it alive. They stuck it into a formaldehyde thing. They tried to study these things, try to figure out what was going on. And eventually, just like the Nostromo, they're cobbling together weapons as they realize that their lives are in danger. Yeah, I would love to see that scene with the colonists removing the thing from a guy's face and him dying during the procedure. Uh, Imagine how that played out. And the other thing we get in this scene, which is just another example of such smart filmmaking, we've talked about how this is this incredibly tense build-up scene where everybody's picturing what happened or what could have happened in their heads. And the one release of tension that you get is the jump scare when the face hugger mm-hmm. in the tank moves. It's a popcorn up in the air moment, I'm sure, especially in the movie theater. It must have been terrifying. That's the only release you get from all that tension that's built up. But it's what very a wonderful jump scare. What a yeah. wonderful jump scare, too. And, and I mean, then, like, that's not a cat jumping out of a closet. Like, it's so logical and appropriate to the situation, other than the fact that Burke is a dumbass for getting that close to it. And she acknowledges it. Ripley is very derisive when she chides him. She's like, careful, Burke. Like, yeah. dumbass, did you read the report? It's another shared beat between Ripley and Hicks because Hicks immediately shoves his face in the frame and, and makes fun of him. It's like, yeah, it's he's like very amused by the thing going after Burke. He's not, he's Don, not taking it you, that seriously. Don, are you saying you wouldn't have liked it if Donzi had jumped out at that moment instead of the... <laughs> Because <laughs> I, I actually, I, I, this is when I started to miss Jonesy. Well, I, I, I think they replaced Jonesy with a small child. So then Frost tells Hicks, I think we got something here. And he's addressing his squad leader, not Lieutenant Gorman. And I remember the thrill of excitement I felt when I saw this the first time, because you are immediately thinking, what is it? It ramps up so well here that they pick up this on the motion tracker. They all establish it's not one of us. And I think the fact that it's Newt that triggers it is something that just prolongs the dread because Mm -hmm. the suspense is just so amazing in this long, long lead up without any aliens uh, other than the ones in the tubes being evidenced until 
literally an hour into the movie is when we actually see the aliens. Right. But you in no way think watching this for the first time that the signal they're picking up is going to be a little girl. That's the last thing in the world that you mm-hmm. expect it to be. Yeah, Cameron borrows a carpenter shot and has her run across foreground. Oh, well, Hicks, I think Hicks might see her because he saves her, it looks like, perhaps, by instinctively stopping Drake from lighting her up. Drake pulls the trigger like he yeah. fires into the ceiling. And, and even Riago, you know, Hicks slaps his gun into the air and Drake is like, what the hell, man? Yep. <laughs> so, and yep. in fact, I believe there's a beat a little bit later on in which I think Vasquez pulls the trigger and Hicks slaps it away. Here's another heroic quality is not only does he keep his cool, but he's also perceptive. Yeah. Very, mm-hmm. very. But I mean, he's, he's so ideal. <laughs> like, he's well, I, so... I, I, Kind of the perfect, he's the perfect guy for this situation. I would say that he actually has an arc in the sense that the relationship that he has with Ripley. They're both characters who are out on the fringe. They're very career oriented. They're very, they work with machines and an industry and ships paychecks and and they're surrounded by morons so to really get <laughs> but you know it's like I, I, they're they're both two people who have who are spending their adult years working on crews and remote situations they kind of see a kindred soul within each other and i i think that's kind of what brings them together absolutely yeah. so wouldn't it be a different movie if they'd shot newt when they ran in front of them when she I, ran in front of them i did think of that hicks slaps drake's rifle uh, away so he doesn't shoot newt they realize that's a little girl, and they immediately go, Ripley. Yeah. Well, it's Hicks that does that. Like, Hicks calls Ripley over. I couldn't tell if that's because she's the expert on these things or if she, he he actually knows that it's a little girl. But he seems, like, very uh, – he, he gives this kind of smile, like a knowing smile when he notices that it's a girl. Like, it, it, it feels like – you know, he's kind of delighted by it. But then she takes charge and she acts first and she goes directly after Newt when no one else does mm-hmm. and kind of trails her into the little layer that Newt has established in the air ducts. And she seems comfortable talking to Newt right away. Like, it seems like she's calmed down a kid or two in her day well, and she still has to physically restrain her, but she's willing to do that. Ripley has found some the only other person who has survived the aliens. They have a shared experience. They've seen everybody else get murdered by these things. The Marines immediately send in the, the civvy to go talk to her. No, Ripley. she takes charge. She does it yeah. herself. I mean... No, they, they call her over. They go, Ripley. <laughs> not like, exactly. That's, that's her function in the squad in that beat. And it's like, and so, but I mean, yeah, it's like she tries to talk her out of there. And when that doesn't happen, she dives in head first crawls in in there and you know i was thinking i'm like so why did if newt is so scared of them why did she come this close i think that she got curious she heard them kind of rummaging around in this section got close enough to see what was going on with the idea that she would immediately scamper away and ripley is too quick and too on the ball for her she's a second grader third at the most i mean think about that just out of curiosity (laughs) i decide to pull up the actress who played her. There's like nothing else in her IMDb outside of behind the scenes kind of stuff. Oh yeah. This is widely known uh, and discussed that her nightmares after making this film were so bad that her parents basically discouraged her from acting again. There's even like some headshots, which you might see in like a corporate brochure. Um, She's a teacher. Here's a woman who has spent a lot of time going on dates with accountants 
and going, you know, this might sound weird, but I was actually in this movie called Aliens, and the guy going, oh, my God, it's my favorite movie ever, and I'm going, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in this scene, I think what makes her give up in Ripley's arms is that she is so happy to be in a mother's arms, you know, and she just lets it all go for a second and can become a kid again, and it's such a relief to her. Uh, and then uh, we we move forward a little bit, and they're checking out Newt in the med lab, and we get another illustration of what a clueless prick Gorman is, who can't remember anyone's goddamn name, when he's like, what's her name again? And the hot chocolate scene is always one of my favorites for some reason in this film. It's just, it's so well done. You know, Ripley gives her this this hot cocoa and she doesn't react at all to it and Ripley's like that good huh <laughs> and then there's a little bit of cocoa on her face and she wipes it off and she goes uh oh now I've done it I made a clean spot and it just illustrates how filthy this feral child's face is but also Ripley's dry wit here is just really fun Gorm is he's interrogating a survivor in his mind mm. and there's nothing in the rule book that tells you how to speak to an eight-year-old child. You know, so, so he gets yeah, he, frustrated. He doesn't know what to do. Because total brain lock. In this scene, I think the interaction between Ripley and Newt, this again is the difference between James Cameron and Michael Bay. You'd never argue that Michael Bay doesn't know how to, how to stage an action scene. But what makes the action work, what invests us in the characters, what Michael Bay seems incapable of doing is creating these little honest moments between the actors and between the characters that work really well. That this, you literally, in this moment, you are setting up the confrontation between Ellen Ripley, the mother, and the alien queen, the mother. So you have to set up adoptive parent feeling, and it happens right here in this moment in just very quiet lines. A lot of, I look at that, there's, there's not a lot of directors who can do both. It really is a really great small little scene. Yeah, it's fantastic. And you get that element of their shared traumatic history of losing everything when she says that, you know, only her brother calls her Rebecca. And it's such a nice little random detail and reminder of the trauma here. She didn't just lose her parents. It's worse to lose your sibling. You expect to go through your whole life with that person. The only slightly offbeat is when she asks, when Ripley asks her about her mother and father, and she's like, they're dead, okay? That felt a little more um, teenager-ish, that kind of obnoxious. Petulant. That feels a little movie character-ish. And even the girl can't, she can't do it well. Throughout that entire scene, that's like the one line that uh, lands with a little bit of a jangle, a little bit of a clunk. Although, thinking about uh, how this scene would play out if Michael Bay had directed this film. And uh, <laughs> one could imagine Ripley going, so um, what kind of a car do you drive? <laughs> and then cut to an American new, flag. <laughs> Corvette, would be, okay. would be 18 and played by Megan Fox. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, she'd be wearing tight jeans yeah. as well. Yeah, and they might care. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, I, I love Michael Bay and his films with all my heart, but it does take a, a deft touch to be able to have a film in which you have these be, the, these scenes that really play and, and establish why we care about these characters. So when the aliens do come, when the gunfire does go off, we care about them as these pretend people as human beings. And there's a darkly funny moment here, too, where Ripley asks Newt if she thinks she'll be safer here. And Newt just shakes her head. It won't make any difference. 
It's very ominous. Newt is absolutely sure that they're fucked and they can't win. How chilling is that to see the, the rescued child look at the rescuer and the cavalry and be like, you needn't have bothered. Now you're dead, too. And until this moment, Ripley's been that character where she's like, you know, you have no idea what danger, how dangerous these things are. You, you think you're that you're tough, but you're not. These things are going to eat everybody alive. When she meets Newt, then she tries to be the adult. She tries to be the parent and buck her up. We're talking about where the characters find their shared aspects, where they form connections. Newt is the only other survivor. She's also the only other one who's like, Ripley's trying to tell her that Santa Claus exists. And she's like, no, and you should know better. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. hey, Ripley knows. Yeah, she's like, yeah, this kid's right. <laughs> it's well, Throughout the movie, Newt really relies on her own instincts. She never trusts these people. When Ripley puts her, locks her into the seat, she slips out of it and gets into her own corner. When Ripley tucks her into bed, she gets out of bed, she sleeps under the bed. She knows that she knows how to survive better than these guys do. She, she's yeah. got uh, a hundred and some odd examples. <laughs> yeah. She's watched like a hundred some odd other people try other things besides run and hide. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> And they didn't work, yeah. yeah. So you get another red herring uh, in the next beat here with Bishop. If you watched Ash in action in Alien, you see this scene where Bishop is dissecting the facehugger and says, magnificent, isn't it? It's a great red herring because you really think he's up to no good. I made a mental note to ask you guys. In both of these films, the artificial human expresses admiration of the design of the antagonists. Where do you th- where do you guys think that's coming from? Well, I mean, I think from a screenwriting perspective, I look at it as this is how you build up your antagonist. The more somebody admire, you know, the more somebody, especially somebody as cold and clinical as that, can look at it and say, this is a perfect killing machine, the more frightened you are. That I'm actually reminded that there's literally almost identical dialogue in the movie Outbreak, when Dustin Hoffman, when they're looking at the disease and how it works, and Dustin Hoffman says, yeah, but you almost have to admire its perfection, don't you? That's what it is. It's the same thing, actually, if you think about uh, some of Cooper's dialogue in Jaws. It's a perfect killing machine. All it does is eat and swim and make little sharks. It's just a way to build up the aliens and make you realize how frightening they are without having them do anything. In this case, I agree with all of that, but I also think that correlation with the first movie and the idea that these synthetics are on team let's get rich off of the alien. This is a valuable species that can be exploited in some way that it really is leading you down that path that Bishop is like a Burke or, you know, another company stooge. The synthetics can admire well-designed machinery, whether it's biological or, or artificial. And it, because they, they have no emotional skin in the game because they're both androids. Can yeah, the, the I, humans I, and the aliens are both all others, you know, alternate forms of life to the observer in that case. If you were a sentient car and you saw like a really well-built car, you could go, wow, that's well, that a really well-built car. That would be looking at another robot if you want to be. They're still designed. Yeah. Kirby the Love Bug would be very impressed with Kit from Knight Rider. I think that's a little <laughs> <laughs> you know, Vic, I, I think you should look up and see if that fan fiction exists. <laughs> 
All right. So they find the colonists. Uh, Hudson does their personal data transmitters or whatever, their implants. And they notice that they're all concentrated in one area under the atmosphere processing station. Somebody says, looks like a goddamn town meeting. And you know that's not what it is. The anticipation of dread builds. So they head out. 53 minutes into the movie, they deploy at the tower. <laughs> Even if there were no aliens, that would still be a creepy realization. I would immediately start thinking, are they in a cult? Mm-hmm. Is there, is there, what the fuck are they all doing collected at like the bomb of like basically the thing's motor? You know? It's very creepy. Yeah. yeah. For some reason, Hudson is on point and not the smart gun operators as they explore the increasingly entombed atmosphere processing station there's this spidery vibe to the webbing the secretions of the aliens that they've coated everything with they resemble spiny webs wrapped around pipes and ducts the way that a a spider web would they asked ripley about it and she's like no i've never seen this that's a great beat too yeah because to have someone ask ripley and you know with the depth of her experience suddenly it's now we're outside of her experience and that ups the ante even more later on there is like uh, so what's laying these eggs i think it's bishop is just like uh, something we haven't seen yet now you you do wonder why the aliens need to build this hive with this secreted resin i really think the purpose of it is that it creates an environment in which the aliens are camouflaged yes so that if there is an intruder or a predator that comes in which is essentially what the what the, the colonial marines are they're intruders and the aliens are invisible to them. I mean, they walk right past them. In terms of an, an evolutionary development, the ability, you know, I mean, it's, it's almost the inverse of a chameleon that can't make themselves look like the walls, but they make the walls look like them. They create a perfect killing ground for, for any intruders. And, and you'll notice that when the alien drones are not needed, they go into like kind of a hibernation. They, they curl up within their camouflaging resin and they just sit there un, until needed mm-hmm. again. Yeah, absolutely. I think you nailed it. You get that with Dietrich. One is looming behind her, much like a shot that I mentioned in the first film where the alien is right there in the frame and you can discern it before it moves potentially but it does blend in almost perfectly with the background even those reaction shots so like when we start cutting around and we see the aliens kind of waking up of all the amazing aspects of this film the production design is off the charts because you're you're just looking at just uh, a section of tubing or hallway and then suddenly the walls start to move and you go holy shit if I couldn't see them sitting there these guys are fucked (laughs) yes Yes. And, and right before that happens though they come to a major realization the pulse rifles it will cause a chain reaction that will cause the nuclear plant to explode if they fire down there it's funny that again it's ripley that figures that out you know who asks lieutenant what do those pulse rifles fire burke doesn't even think of it what ripley realizes and he's supposed to have memorized the specs to this place but ripley is the one that realizes the place will blow up if they fire their weapons it's because of the bad leadership here that vasquez and drake disobey orders and they hoard some ammo because they think this is typical moronic numb nuts military leadership the mistake that is made here is gorman doesn't explain why Exactly. He, he just says, opponent gather all their, their their ammunition. Everyone's like ruling their eyes. And they're like, what the fuck? Are you serious? Like he doesn't say, I, I mean, because you guys are sitting 
under basically this thing's fusion reaction gas tank. And if you fire it off, then we're all fucked. If you had spent two more seconds to explain to his soldiers why the command is coming down, then they would save themselves a lot of problems. But Yeah, he just assumes that they're going to obey. By the book, they're just going to say, sir, yes, sir, and that's going to be it. And it's like, oh shit, they're actually like thinking human beings in a stressful situation. They might think that they might, you know, go, eh, I'm actually going to keep a little uh, something in my back pocket. Fuck this. What is the purpose of that? Like, it puts, like, I understand that it puts the Marines at a disadvantage a little bit, but they've still got flamethrowers. They've still got shotguns and pistols. And Drake and Vasquez wind up firing anyway to absolutely no consequence. So what is it narratively, what, how, what does it serve? Like how, what does it do for the scene? Because it never comes up again. And when they do fire the rounds, nothing blows up. It's referenced later that the drop ship crashing contributed, but I kind of had the feeling that them shooting there is what begins the problem with the, oh, the venting. Oh, with the station. Yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. okay. You're right. That's interesting. No, I hadn't. I hadn't thought of that. Okay. Yeah, Vic. What you're kind of you know subconsciously looking for is a quick shot of pulse rifle rounds going through a piece of metal and like steam coming out. You know? Yeah, and, and you don't get that, so you, you kind of have to surmise it a little bit. But because that's because that's what happened. Like if you're going to trigger a nuclear reaction in a movie, it's pulse rifles piercing something and steam coming out of it. Well, you know, like, I mean, okay. you know, just, just <laughs> no, no, I know, I know. I'm just saying that's you know, exactly I'm, that's exactly what it would look like if you were yeah. going to do it this is a squad that's sent into enemy territory where they're completely with limited inform- information their overconfidence due to their technology then we take away the technology we even start saying oh yeah you guys are super rough tough guys well let's take away your guns now what? Yeah. and they're still like oh, i like they know that that's a bad thing to do but uh, still they've got their flamethrower the incinerators they got pistols shotguns blah 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 yeah, but it's not nearly as good as it would have been. Like, I think that they, if this scene had played out in another location and they were all fully armed, I think they would have done better against the aliens than yeah. they do. I mean, like, when you have a little pistol, like a couple of them do, uh, yeah. you're you're really kind of fucked. Even when you have a full-on heavy weapon pulse rifle, the one time we see Vasquez truly unleash on an alien, I mean, she chews the fucking thing apart. But then it's blood sprays all over Drake and he gets burned. Even when you're at the top of your game, you're in the perfect scenario where I'm just going to let's rock. You still get fucked up because you're not thinking about the things, other biological defenses. There's something going on in this film time and time again. It's obviously very conscious from a writing perspective. The heroes will do something and it will backfire in some way. There will be some consequences. One action then causes uh, something bad to happen. And it begins Mm -hmm. here. Before they get attacked, they see these frozen corpses encrusting the wall. The frozen poses make them look like these damned souls in hell. And when you're a kid watching this, I mean, it's really, really nasty shit. All these frozen reaching hands and rictus faces. It's it's quite spooky. There's a Renaissance painting aspect to this. So they find this woman, and there's another great jump scare when she suddenly snaps alive and says, Please, 
kill me. And the music cue recalls Ripley's dream. She's watching her own nightmare unfold on a screen before her. Uh, it's kind of like she watches the whole first movie play out on fast forward because she watches the signs of infection, meaning the, the egg is there opened. You get the birth. The thing comes out of the woman's chest and then the attack of the warrior aliens. And you can tell she's so horrified. She can feel it all happening. Yeah. And you get the high-pitched squeal of a little one getting flambéed. They have an amazing scream, these aliens. It's somewhere between, like, an elephant and, you know, some screeching mammal of some kind. But it's very, it is very alien, the high-pitched shriek. But I love it. That moment when they burst out of your chest is almost the only moment in their entire life cycle when they're kind of vulnerable. Yeah. And the fact that they're able to torch that one, it's the first alien down. And even then you sort of go, well, that wasn't so hard. But you don't realize, as Ripley does, that it's going to grow to be six feet tall in two hours. It's going to be a full-grown adult and mm -hmm. scary as all hell. That's right. I also actually thought watching this, this scene in particular, it's something sort of vaguely reminiscent of Carpenter's The Thing with the flamethrowers and, I don't know, this idea of people morphing, changing things, sort of bursting out of them, and the only thing you can do is spray it with the uh, with the flamethrower. I don't know, did you guys did you guys think of that at all? I thought thing? of the thing when you see the face hugger in medical running along the floor. Uh, I thought yeah. of the thing in that moment. Oh, good. a good one, too. Cameron probably watched the first movie and kind of made a list of things he wanted to keep, because I mean, you remember the crew of the Nostromo, they kind of cobble together their motion tracker. They appropriate the, the incinerators from other tools. They're using industrial tools to create their own weapons and items to use in the situation. And whereas in this, it's just part of their gear. They have a motion tracker as like part of their gear. Uh, the locator is part of their gear. They have flamethrowers as part of their gear. They come in handy. So all of this rouses the warrior aliens. The music is so foreboding. It's such a fucking moment as you start to see them uncoil and it's so well built up to, and you just know here they come. Y'all yeah. are so fucked. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's, it's like already too late. I think when Ripley says, pull your team out Gorman, because they've already flamboed the, you know, once they light up the, the baby it's, it's on Dietrich gets attacked. She flames frost. Again, here we go with the sort of one thing leading to the next. You know, their own actions are a big part of the problem. Frost then blows up with all the ammo on him, and that kills, I believe, Crow, if not Wierzbowski, as well. I had a malfunction on my DVD player. This is embarrassing. <laughs> I had to watch this whole movie with the subtitles on. Mm. And you guys can ask Amy, we did everything we could to turn the subtitles off. We couldn't do it. It drove us a little crazy. But for my whole life, I thought Hicks was shouting, where's Basky? <laughs> and it was the first time I realized that the guy's name was Wisbasky. Wisbasky has only one line where he interacts with Bishop. And he's like, hello, Bishop. That's all that that character gets until... Suddenly, like, it's a, you know, Wispowski! Wispowski! It's like, who? What? <laughs> All we know well, about him is you... that he lingers too long trying to see what happened to Frost, and then he gets blown up because of it. The script tells you who the red shirts are. <laughs> yeah. you know, if, if you only have one line in the first 45 minutes of the movie, you're not going to get out of the, uh, you're not going to get out of the scene. Do, do you like that Frost gets burned up? <laughs> <laughs> 
it's I don't know if that's intentional or not. But so Apone is trying to listen to his boss on the radio and completely distracted. And that's how he dies is that the aliens grab him while Gorman is repeating his worthless orders. Well, and the Gorman's instructions actually make sense. And use your incinerators, fall back to the APC, blah, blah. But it's like, Hone is like, what? Huh? Who? Because like his squad's getting blown up around him. It's like, huh? What? And that's well, I mean, I, it's not that the, the orders, like, if followed, would be worse than what's happening. But I think the orders are so obvious that if he just let them do their job, that's probably what they would do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, the orders, I, and all Gorman has to say is get the fuck out of right. this. They're the orders of someone who's never been in combat before. He's repeating what he read in a book. You know, when if you, you know, if you've actually been through it, yeah, the order is get the fuck out of there. Which, which, of course, is what Ripley said, because she's a better commander than him. But There's something really painful about the screams that we hear from Wierzbowski and Apone. He's mm-hmm. really not happy about whatever they're doing to him. And again, this sort of just raises that question. Do they inject you with something? You know, like they don't want to kill you. They don't kill Apone. Obviously, they don't kill Newt, which, not to get ahead of ourselves, but... I always thought it's like a little bit hokey that she doesn't have a scratch on her because mm-hmm. like it sounds like generally when they grab these people, they do something awful to you. Especially the way we see it with, I know it's the queen, but the way we see it with Bishop at the end, that they, they use the tail like a harpoon. They grab you through the leg or even through the chest or something and just drag you away like that. Well, you end up getting, you know, they put you unconscious somehow. So I do think mm-hmm. they they inject something into you and then you wake up and you're about to be implanted. But Gorman gets really mad when he realizes that Ripley is driving. And it's funny because it seems like for him it's partially just, oh, good, we're back to bureaucratic bullshit and change of chain of command stuff. And she's not authorized to drive the APC. God damn it. It's kind of <laughs> how he plays it. <laughs> I, I, I think, um, you know, he's so cowardly in that beat that he actually reacts with fear. He would he would rather hmm. let everyone get chewed up and he himself survive. Than right. To, he yeah. does his eyes flare with what appears to be extreme alarm. Yeah, he's terrified. And it's just like, no. So I, I, and we're listening to everyone get murdered. And you want us to go drive in there and get murdered, too. He actually, like, wrestles with the wheel with her. I mean, like, yeah. I mean, that's why the APC bounces around that hallway so much. He's wrestling for control of the vehicle. And it's, <laughs> it's like, what? Dude, what the fuck, man? His moment, they did some great sort of shot get right on of him as the people are dying. And he's going, a poem, you know, Hicks, mm-hmm. Hudson. And you just, again, you see the terror that he has that this has gone so totally wrong and he has no idea what to do. It is of interest that earlier he accuses Newt of having complete mental shutdown. Yeah. 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 This is his low moment. This mm-hmm. is this is really the moment that he redeems at the end, is this moment when he is just utterly useless. Worse okay. than useless. He's when trying to get in the way of characters trying to solve it. Yeah. So we get a red herring for Burke here when he says, you had your chance, Gorman. He's back in Ripley's play. And again, mm-hmm. like it's it's really clever how throughout up to this point in the film, almost anything you see from Bishop is kind of suspicious. We're still getting these little beats for Burke that suggest maybe he's not as bad of a guy as he ultimately will be. So, yeah, Ripley drives them through the colonist barricade. 
again, back to that dynamic of their own actions having negative consequences. Vasquez causes the death of Drake, as Mike alluded to before, with friendly fire, uh, acid sprays on him. And then he lights up the APC with his flamethrower as he goes down. And that compounds things. We get a very 80s line. Eat this! As the, the warrior alien thrusts its face into the APC and someone fires Hicks' shotgun into yeah. its mouth. Yeah, Hicks shoves his shotgun straight down its mouth and, and yeah. pulls the trigger. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like a broad 80s action line, but it's definitely earned. It's like mm-hmm. that they, they've been so fucking demolished by the aliens. It's like you, you want to get a fuck you back at them. Right. You do. You do. Now, Hudson gets sprayed with acid there. And you kind of think for a, a minute that he's really fucked when the acid hits his arm. But nothing really comes of that. Does he and, pull his armor off? I, I guess maybe it matters that he has a bare arm later in the film, but he, he's never really incapacitated in any way by this happening. But at the moment, the way he screams and everything, you're like, oh, man, is he going to lose his arm? Or The darkness of this scene is really thick. And then you do get an appropriate lame thing that happens to Gorman. You kind of have to cackle when he's just suddenly knocked out inside the APC. Heroic people have heroic things happen to them. Useless people get bonked on the head with a thing that fell off a shelf. I think it works. Yeah, Yeah. it's a little convenient, but also it's sold. It works. It's fitting. Yeah, and another amazing thing here are the sound effects of the alien limbs, maybe the tail, whipping in the air. It goes a long yeah. way for this movie because it, it's such a like a whip crack. Like, yeah. you know that that thing is whipping at extreme velocity and you do not want to be hit by that. Especially in the moment when Ripley, they're in the thing, they've got to close, they're driving away. It seems like they're, they're safe. And then all of a sudden you get the alien bursting through the windshield, essentially, yeah. at Ripley. The music is still pumping. If you had like you completely come down from the tension, but boy, do you think that it's you know that they're on their way to safety when that happens? And I distinctly remember that of the tail going through the glass and then the alien head coming through. Now this ends up being another little win, though, for her in the sense, like Mm -hmm. kind of along the same lines of "Eat this" when she jams the brakes, flips it off, runs over it, and you just love seeing one of these things get crushed under the wheels because up to this point, we really haven't seen this kind of a win for humanity. Hicks yells, Ripley, you blow the transaxle. You're just grinding metal, which for some reason has always been one of my favorite lines in the movie. It just, <laughs> I don't know why, but I just love it. And moving on from there, Hicks has his bid for authority at this point. And I think he says back off right now to Vasquez when Vasquez is going to go after Gorman, I believe. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. 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 I see. Wait, I do just want to say, guys, because as you get out of that scene with Hicks going, ease down, ease down, <laughs> and the movie, and the whole movie eases down when he says that. Yeah. That, at the, at, the, at the end of that moment, I think, is the end of one of the great action scenes in any American film ever made. I, that moment, from the moment when Vasquez says, let's rock, to the moment when Ripley finally eases down on that, it is the apex of action filmmaking. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think James Cameron has yeah. ever topped it. But I, I wouldn't even frame it in the sense that that's like the high point of the film. Like, I completely agree. But to me, Act 3 
as many twists and turns and peaks and valleys and amazing elements of Act 3, I would dare say that this is my favorite Act 3 of any action film ever made. That's a lot of hyperbole to throw at this movie, guys. Let's back it up, okay? <laughs> Let's pick it up with Hudson losing his shit and saying things like, I'm not going back in there! You can't make me! <laughs> and he's the one that had just told them that their comrades are alive, too. He just said that the Sergeant Dietrich ain't dead. So it's very, it's darkly funny that he, he's such a puss. It's magnificent. And she says, she talks about nuking the place from orbit, and Burke, you know, says, well, you know, this institution has a substantial dollar value attached to it. And she's like, they can bill me, which is an awesome <laughs> 80s populist statement. And then Burke says, clearly this is an important species that we're dealing with. Uh, it's so hilarious. He goes, I, I don't think that you or me or anyone has the right to arbitrarily exterminate them. He takes this kind of tree hugger sort of approach to the argument. And then uh, Hudson says, maybe you haven't been keeping up with current events, man, but we just got our asses kicked, pal. <laughs> it's, it's Having your ass kicked is, again, sort of a high school metaphor for Hudson. Like, that's just kind of how he... He thinks. And then when Hicks says uh, that's the only way to be sure, echoing Ripley's line, uh, it's a flirty hat tip to her. She's kind of getting his support here. And also there's a little bit of flirtation to it. It is, but it's also the first time in the whole movie when Ripley says this is what we ought to do and somebody else says yes. Yeah. And it, and it becomes that moment because remember Ripley's the one she, she says that. Burke says, I can't authorize that kind of thing. And she says, actually, I think Hicks is in charge. So Hicks says, yes, I'm in charge, but I'm going to listen to Ripley. Uh, yeah. And so I think that moment, in, in addition to being a little flirty, that's the moment at which the authority passes to Ripley and she becomes the person who's in charge. Sometimes I wonder, with the development of this script, they really needed Sigourney Weaver to come on. I mean, and they ended up giving her anything she wanted, basically financially. I believe she was the first actress to get a million dollars. And you almost think that the script is, I wouldn't say pandering to her, but it's amazing how almost every time somebody has to be resourceful or come up with a fix, it's Ripley, 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 Ripley every time. And it's very flattering. I'll, I'll just say that. It's just protagonist development. Hero is our hero, and she is our hero, and here is why. But we oh, just yeah. take it to an extreme. Like, of all films, I can't think of one that has more hero beats than this film. John, to that point, the one thing that does occasionally take me out of it, if I think about it, she's been asleep for, like, 60 years. Yeah. So there is a sense in which when she's the one who points out that these pulse rifles that they're firing are going to make the nuclear core blow up, or she's the one who reads the diagram and says, well, if we seal it off here, here, and here, and here, yeah. if she's never seen one of these facilities before, she's probably never seen blueprints you know, that operate in 3D, the way that those blueprints operate. That's kind um, of my point. Like, even when it's more logical for them to give that little win to another character, Ripley still yeah. gets it. You know, even when yeah. it's it's slightly stretching the, the plausibility, which is, I agree, for the reason that you just said. Apparently, when the dropship is being prepped to come pick them up, the alien 
infiltrates the dropship, and it can't help but spooge on the railing on its way in, which I guess, you know, they have a lot of saliva and whatnot, because Spunkmeyer, you know, finds it and touches it by accident on his way in. I think it's funny that that means there are three stowaway aliens in the first two movies of this film. One in the life <laughs> capsule, one in the dropship, and then another in the other dropship, the Queen of course. Like an insect, they like nooks and crannies. They invade your body, they invade your mind, but they also get into your shit. They, they invade your ships, they invade your space. Can somebody tell me what what is Spunkmeyer doing outside the ship? Like, is he taking a piss? It looks like he's taking a piss. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I was like that guy named Spunkmeyer gets his hand in the thing spooned. <laughs> <laughs> and the way Pharaoh acts, like, she's like, Spunkmeyer, you know, like, he's dilly-dallying again. Uh, where is he? And then the the door opens and it's not him, of course. And I love the way that scene is shot. Um, there's a lot of blood when Pharaoh buys it. You don't get the feeling that this thing is planning to impregnate her, but you don't really see much. It's mostly implied and it's just very – you hear her thrashing against the canopy covered in blood. So it's smearing like the sound is a smeary sound. It's really great. The dropship crashes, and you really have to laugh when you see Hudson registering what happened on his face. The thought process is so obvious as he watches the ship crash. Of course, he has some of the most classic dialogue here. That's fucking great, man! And of course, game over, game over. I'm talking about hero hero beats. Ripley is the one who shouts, run! (laughs) Right. Or how about Burke suggesting after the crash that they uh, sing some songs or on fire? It's so fatuous. Like, that statement, it serves no purpose other than him falling back on his true nature, which is to be an asshole. And at the same time, though, the movie is kind of playing us because at this point, if you haven't seen it before, you're just wondering, like, is Burke just a feat? Clueless sarcasm is all he can offer. Um, But it is such a absolutely worthless thing to say. Like, so unhelpful. (laughs) I also, by the way, this was another Jaws moment. Hudson saying, that's, well, that's great, man. That's just great. It's exactly what, what Shatter says after Quint destroys the radio in Jaws. Is, right. Well, that's great. That's just great. Now well, where the know, hell are we? You, you bring up Jaws. We're impressed with its biological design. It does nothing but eat and swim and create little sharks. And again, you know, the, the thrill, you know, the similarity here is that we have humanity running up a uh, against a pure organism you know something that's designed only for one thing and that's to eat and procreate and that's it like a shark a xenomorph isn't they don't fight each other they don't stab each other in the back they don't get scared they're unencumbered by anything that weakens us which is ironically enough our intellect it's both our greatest weapon because these things don't have nukes but at the, but it's also our greatest weakness you know, because these things don't get scared, they don't bicker. Yeah. So they their plan at this point is to hold out for 17 days because that is about as long as it would take for help to come or, you know, realize that they're not coming back from this mission. And, of course, Hudson says, hey, man, I don't want to rain on your parade, but we're not going to last 17 hours. Yeah. That does seem like a, a weirdly long period of time for the Sulaco to go, well, it's been two weeks. Nah, let's give it a couple more days. <laughs> well, it's not the Sulaco. I think there's no one on the Sulaco at this point. Um, it would be help from 
back home. Oh, so it's like a okay, I got. It. Yeah, yeah. But uh Ripley takes command, Hudson falls in line behind her and he's just so high strung. I think that's his main problem that she has to get him to just get a grip and calm down a little bit. Well, she they gives him look, a job. She gives him, yeah, like a, she gives him right. a clear task that's within his area of, of expertise that helps him kind of give him something to focus on that isn't the danger that they're in. Exactly. Yeah, that's a really good point. And that's what gets him to focus on doing something. And, and it is helpful because he brings up the schematics and Ripley figures out how to seal up med lab and operations she does it all. Likely, she literally drives the train, the APC. The only thing she can't do is fly, I guess. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> Bishop is, is the only one who's qualified to remotely pilot the dropship. I, I mean, everyone's kind of passing out and, and figuring out their assigned tasks that they're going to need to survive. You know, it goes to Bishop, and he's like, well, I'm going to continue my uh, correlation and study and uh, right, this and that. Right. And she goes, yeah, you do that in, in this kind of dismissive way. But, it, but you suspect him there because it's very much like what Ash Exactly. Say. That's exactly mm-hmm. where I was going with this, John, because I mean, in the first movie, it's like, you know, they, they would have these kind of powwows. I'm going to do this. You're going to do that. Da, 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 da. And then they go to the science officer and he's like, I'm going to continue my study. And it goes on so long that it becomes comical. Like she laughs, she sarcastically laughs at him. Like, what? That's <laughs> what the fuck? Right. You know, and of course, he's using that to hide his hidden agenda. They look at that, they figure out what they're going to do. And Hicks has one of his many cool lines when he says, no, we need is a deck of cards. And uh, Brooke is seen wheeling something along, like having to help with the work. And he's visibly frowning. To me, it, it looks like he's mad that he actually has to do something. <laughs> and then uh, we get the scene where Hicks gives Ripley the, the locator, which essentially looks like a wristwatch, and it'll tell him wherever she is in the complex. And... It's flirty and the energy is like a little bit, she knows it's flattering that he's taken this degree of personal interest in her well-being. And then he has to say, it's just a precaution. doesn't mean we're engaged or anything. Yeah, it's an extremely telling line. Yeah. And she she smiles in a shy manner. Like Mm -hmm. she she kind of looks at the floor and looks back at him and a big smile on her face. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a little bit coy, demure, whatever you want to say. There's a little bit of chemistry going on here between these two characters. I think if you look at Sigourney Weaver's career, sort of outside of Aliens, if you look at A Working Girl or Heartbreakers or Galaxy Quest, I think that she struggled to get away from the tough loner kind of gorillas in the mist, you know, uh, uh, Diane Fossey kind of character. Um, because I think she enjoys those scenes. Like, I think she enjoys, uh, as an actress, sort of toying with the sexual tension between her and Michael Bean. And it's, it's just interesting to see her enjoying that. And she provides these little moments here. And I think that it's, her enjoyment is almost palpable in it. And I think you see that more later on in her career. And he goes to show her how to use the rifle, again, as a precaution, because they're so far down that she might have to take up arms against the aliens. It's odd that she has a negative reaction against it. Like she, she's a quick study. She's someone who's used to being around tools, figuring out how things work, you know, la la. But when he slaps the, the magazine in, she kind of winces a little bit. 
he has a, a pushback against using the gun at first. But then by the time he's he's done with kind of this rundown, he's like, well, you know, that's a grenade launcher. You probably don't want to mess with that. She's like, no, no, no. Show me everything. And again, that kind of pays off later when she uses it. It's a tool that has a use, especially yeah. if you're trying to defend a little girl from monsters. I didn't really pick up on that, that she was reticent in any way, but could be. After that, Ripley and Newt have their other main scene in the film together. This bedding down in medical scene where Ripley's trying to get her uh, Newt set up so that she can get some sleep. They have this conversation about bad dreams and Ripley doesn't know Newt as well as you know she thinks here because she gets something wrong and she suggests that Casey doesn't have scary dreams, the doll and <laughs> the classic Newt line, Ripley she doesn't have bad dreams because she's just a piece of plastic. It's a laugh beat, but it's also, until Newt shows up, Ripley is the frightened realist. Newt assumes that when she shows up. In terms of an arc, like Ripley kind of, she's weaker, and then when she's put in this position to be the adult, to be the mother, then she becomes stronger, and, and that mantle passes to the girl. It's kind of dealing with coming of age, what illusions a kid can have, and for how long. And at that point, you know, you mentioned earlier, it's sort of like Ripley is ready to say, yes, there is a Santa Claus. But then that happens. She apologizes for it. And then Newt says, there are monsters out there, aren't there? And instead of, you know, giving her some kind of little kid talk, Ripley just goes, yes, there are, aren't there? It's another yep. amazing setup and payoff. Because mm -hmm. you wouldn't have this poignant beat if Newt hadn't just called Ripley on her shit. And they have just a really yeah. honest conversation. You know, she's like, why do they tell little kids that? And Ripley's like, most of the time it's true. And then she says, I'm not going to leave you, Newt. That's a promise. And cross your heart and hope to die. And there's also just this sort of weird darkness to having to say and hope to die. But she passes on the locator to Newt. It's kind of a symbol in this film of human beings caring for one another. And it right. actually is kind of like they're engaged in a sense, you know, it's a <laughs> passing of a, a symbolic representation of that bond. And, and with Ripley passing it on to Newt, it's almost like she's adopting her more formally. It's certainly a statement of intent that says, I'm looking out for you. That locator allows those three characters kind of make an ersatz family unit. Yeah, exactly. She kisses Newt goodbye. She's mommy now. She's hooked. There's no doubt about it. The relationship is set. She says, don't dream. Now we get back to business with the other characters wondering about who's laying these eggs. We find out that Bishop has been instructed to bring the samples along, the, the face huggers, and it was Burke's orders. He was very specific about it, Bishop says. Again, seeming like a pawn of the company at this point. And Ripley confronts Burke with the idea of that he has lied and he does intend on bringing the things back. And she does a little bit of research and she finds out that there was a directive dated 61279 written by Burke Carter J. And I looked that up and I'm like, 1979 is the year that the first movie came out. Is there like an inside joke here? Is that the release date of Alien? 
But hmm. according to IMDb, Alien came out on May 25th in limited release and then June 22nd, not on June 12th in 1979. It's close, though, so I, I have to wonder. So Burke sent the colonists out there unprepared because otherwise he wouldn't have exclusive rights to whatever they found. That's what the directive was. And you you know that if everything went the way Burke wanted it to from this point in the film, even though he he's trying to get Ripley to buy in, he's telling her will be set up for life. I don't believe he's sharing a dime. Like, I don't think no matter what she said at this point, it would have any impact on whether or not her freezer gets sabotaged. He was going to kill her. He was not going to share any of it. He's trying to appeal to to her in the way that he feels that he, he would be appealed to himself. Yeah, very true. He also seems a bit earnest when he says, I expected more from you. I thought you'd be smarter than this. Like, you kind of think on some level... Maybe there's a slight bond on on his part with her that he maybe he would have entertained the idea of not fucking her over. Like there's a little bit of doubt in my mind when I look at that line read. And then again, like when she vows to destroy him for this, you know, and pin his ass to the wall, it does kind of give him no choice at that point. So we'll never really know how he would have handled it if everything had gone the way he wanted it to. I think that what we see with Burke is she keeps, she kind of backs him into a corner. Yeah. And if that's what leads to the scene in the med lab that they were coming up to, he is like a cornered animal in a way by the time we get to this, this what's, what's getting ready to happen and, and Burke's greatest move of slimy shittiness. <laughs> An aspect of Ripley's character is to be very brusque and a little confrontational and to, you know, and to state the truth to people and exactly what's on her mind. And I think in this specific scenario that works against her they've got a lot of mission yet to go in this very life and death scenario and she's already telling him if we survive this i'm gonna fucking fuck you up if she had a little more guile then she would play along with them and look for an opportunity a little bit later on when things are quieted down they're back on this lock xyz but you know she just can't help herself the line is drawn so clearly in the sand that it's not a good strategic move. I mean, kind of what does she expect him to do at this point? She's vowed to ruin his career and probably put him in jail. So it, it is a slightly uncharacteristically dumb decision on Ripley's. Yeah, it's not smart, but it's characteristic. It's She's uncharacteristically dumb, but it's characteristic in the sense that you're right. She is a straight shooter. And she does not manipulate people the way that other characters in this franchise manipulate people. That's just who she is as a character. And we've seen that throughout two movies. So it's not smooth on her part, but you guys have been accusing her of being too perfect of a character. I think that's kind of her flaw in this situation. So yeah. we set up the ticking clock of the place set to blow up in a couple of hours. And we're going to have a lot of building tension that culminates in a literal boom. And that's clearly drawn with the realization that the tower is going to blow up. They can't just stay hunkered down for 17 days. Ripley again solves the problem and comes up with the plan. Bishop volunteers to go remote control the dropship. And you can't tell when he volunteers how Ripley is reading it. She's definitely distrustful of him and wondering what his angle is. But she goes along with it. This is the beat in which he starts turning himself around for us. Well, exactly. and I think we're suspicious of him, too, because of Lance Henriksen. 
Like he's a weird looking dude. Much weirder yeah. looking than Ian Holm even. He is. He gives he gives a, a good I mean it's you know, it's obviously sort of a flat, unaffected performance. I nobody's gonna confuse Lance Henderson with Lance Olivier. But he's good in this part and he does well, I mean, he leaves, that serves he leaves the part. room he leaves room for you to to feel like Ripley does that maybe he is gonna turn out to be a bad guy. Yeah, it's it's very masterfully played both in terms of writing and performance. Now he's crawling along this very narrow tube directly towards the camera and it's an awesome effect and at that time i had not seen shots like this where it's you're very that claustrophobic close. Mm-hmm. bishop crawled through 400 miles of shit and piss i can't even imagine to emerge <laughs> the other side a clean man <laughs> i love that uh hudson immediately jumps on board with bishop going yeah <laughs> so, um, yeah he wants to go <laughs> bishop should go yeah it's like Good but idea. Uh, I, I also i also like that bishop evinces as close to approximation of fear as he's capable whereas well, he like says, you know uh, I, I, i'm sympathetic I, I but some... i'm not stupid but it's also a great moment mm-hmm. when vasquez tries to hand him a pistol he looks at it and hands it to ripley and goes into the tunnel yes yeah, yeah that's it's, a it's great a very, that's a great moment yeah it's very casual too because i and you'll remember that when she flips on him over the cornbread and he gives her almost word for word one of Asimov's robot rules that he can never mm. harm or cause to be harmed human being. And I and of course she doubts that because she's going to doubt any machine due to Ash. Although that is, I find that to be, especially for Ripley's purposes, like a, a fairly offensive way of describing what happened to her when he says, oh yeah, those models always were a little twitchy. Like, Ash was yeah. many things, but Twi- Twitchy is sort of underplaying what was wrong with Ash. Right. Yeah. Oh, you remember when he tried to roll up a porn mag and strangle me with it? <laughs> yeah. When he cuts his finger, it indicates he is potentially flawed. There's a line, I don't know exactly who says it, but I didn't think you ever missed, Bishop, someone says. And he's mm-hmm. looking kind of, he's pondering this dripping of the white characteristic blood that the synthetics have and then Ripley notices that and it's brilliant because not only is it an indicator that oh yeah okay he's a robot like Ash it's also there's a fallibility revealed to that so as much as he immediately says I I could never harm you you know I have these behavior modifiers or whatever it's called inhibitors I could never harm or by a mission of action allow a human being to be harmed. We've just seen a flaw in him. Like he does cut his finger doing that little, little stunt. It's subtle and extremely smart writing and, and really well acted. Guys, just a heads up. I'm getting ready to go to the checkout at Lowe's. So uh, if you want to talk amongst (laughs) yourself for a minute. Okay. (laughs) I I do wonder what the other customers here have been thinking as we walk around having this discussion. (laughs) So you really expect him to die a terrible death at this point is kind of what I was thinking. Like, I'm I'm like, all right, well, maybe he's um, on our side, but I don't think he's going to survive. Like, he is in such a bad situation without a weapon wriggling along this tube. We really expect the worst for him. The last time we saw characters wiggling around in constrained scenarios was when Dallas was crawling around in the air duct. You know, it just never goes well. It is worth pointing out that they have succeeded in making air ducts much, much smaller in the ensuing 57 years. (laughs) (laughs) Ripley crawls under the bed with a dreaming newt. There's this 
ominous music there. And I would love to see Burke go through the process of setting this up, this ambush. Once Ripley falls asleep, apparently he goes in and he removes the weapon from the bed where she left it and unloads two of these capsules containing face huggers. It's so great when Ripley just notices that thing moving, a slightly rocking, empty container. And she knows there's no Breeze or Jonesy or anything that would make right. that happen. I think this is the center beat in terms of two characters. Both of them by themselves are haunted by terrible dreams brought them by the aliens, the, the, the psychic invasion of the, of the xenomorphs. But they find comfort within each other. They're able to finally get some rest. Ripley even talks Newt into sleeping. We see her yawning a little bit earlier on as a setup. And then she's like, you're very tired. Puts her to bed as she would a daughter. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And well, they've been up for like 24 hours. Luckily, Ripley startles awake. Ironically enough, probably due to another scary dream of aliens. Well, uh, I was going to say, I mean, I think that's one of the things about this scene is it is an instance in which I think they wake up and find that their nightmares are real. Yes. What we often find in horror cinema is the idea that an antagonist is playing by the rules of our nightmares, that they have special abilities, that they operate outside of the realms of morality or or realism. It's this blurring of lines between dream and reality that these characters find themselves in. What do you know? They're in a locked room with a couple of facehuggers. Well, this is one of the, the truly one of the only scenes in the movie, I think, that feels like a scene from a horror movie. Yeah, it's straight up horror Exactly. Truly contained in the room, like it's there with two face hunters, but they could just as easy, easily be in the room with Michael Myers. We give Ripley a gun and then immediately take it away from her. It's a very harrowing sequence. Oh, dude, and yeah. Her, her problem solving at the time seemed just brilliant to me. You know, like what a great move to set off the fire alarm. And I think we've seen that a lot since then. At the time, it, it was like an awesome, resourceful move. And then that brings everyone to the rescue. And it appears that Hudson has to shoot the facehugger many, many times to kill it. But then we realize, no, he just sucks because Vasquez kills one with the same weapon he used in one-tenth of the time. So you're assuming he just wasn't hitting it. I suppose. He was just unloading on it. He's a very emotional character. This is where Hudson starts to turn himself around, too. They shoot out the window. Hicks dives through. Hudson climbs in. Newt yells, Hudson! Like she yells to him, this cowardly character, for help. One of my favorite random lines is he goes, Christ, kid, look out! (laughs) And yanks her out of the way and puts a boot on the thing and fucking puts a, a full clip into it. At the end of the day, he saves Newt's life. He kills an alien in like kind of a cool badass pose. Oh, we're not even done with the redemption of Hudson. He gets two big beats, and that's the first one. Mm -hmm. So the aliens itself, the facehuggers here, it's been set up how hard it is to take one of these things off of someone without killing the person. And so it's, it's super harrowing the way that thing is wrapped around Ripley's throat, choking her out and trying desperately to just get a grip with those spidery fingertips on her head so that it can jam that phallic tube down her throat. It's really unsettling because we know so well what could happen here. It just, Mm -hmm. all one of these things wants to do is get a grip on one of them for one second and it could be over for that person. 
Such right. a cool scene. They do take care of the two fake huggers, though, and then confront Burke because Ripley knows instantly what happened here. And we get the classic line, you don't see them fucking each other over for a goddamn percentage. Yeah, yeah. And then that uh, prompts Hicks, the leader, due to his military jurisdiction, to say, all right, we waste him. No offense. I love that no offense. No <laughs> offense. <laughs> but like, Ripley wants yeah. him to go back and stand for what he's done, though. Like, because she thinks, I think she sees the political and societal importance of dealing with this, what the company and its employees are responsible for. So I think her next move, if all went according to plan here, would be to call the company to account. She doesn't want this buried out in space again. She wants to bring this guy back and put him on trial and call the New York Times and do the entire thing. You exactly. know, I think in both films, both Ash and Burke are standing for the real bad guy, and the real bad guy is the company. And so, yeah, like that's who she wants to take down. Yeah, the company uh, enables it's... these villains and motivates them. It's creating a culture. The culture that we see with all this greed is basically the company's corporate culture. If it comes down to straight-up warfare between humanity and xenomorphs, they can launch a nuke and take them out from orbit with a touch of a button. only reason that humanity is in danger from these things is because their employers shove them in the worst possible scenario where they're helpless. They keep getting thrown into the lion's den by the company and he wants to keep Burke around. So like they can't just go, well, they're, you know, you blew up the ship. There's no proof. You know, she wants to drag him back and say, no, this dude did it. Naively thinking that Burke wouldn't slither his way out of that situation. But, you know. Yeah, she says you're not going to sleaze your way out of this one. Then the alien the warriors lay siege to the um, operations area where everyone is holed up. And it takes them a really long time to figure out why this movement on their motion trackers might be inside the room. It seems impossible because they're not looking at the aliens. But at the same time, it's not that hard to reach the conclusion Ripley eventually does, which is that they're one level above them. I didn't buy that entirely. And I also feel like it was kind of funny that yet again, they have to give Ripley the win there and have her be the one to realize that the aliens are above the ceiling. And then they uh, are you know, trying to fight their way out of this full, all guns blazing assault by the aliens. And Burke is under, in the custody of Gorman. And all he has to do to escape that custody is yell, do something, Gorman. And then he gets to run off. Gorman drops his weapon to join the fight. We have three pure action scenes. And in the earlier one, the colonial marines are decimated by the aliens. They're caught by surprise. They're semi-helpless, a lot. In this one, the marines know that the aliens are coming. They're back-to-back. They've got their guns up. And now it feels like they're going to try to get some payback. And I love that we give Hudson a second heroic beat. Suddenly his emotionality actually kind of pays off. He's fucking badass dude. It's like, come on, motherfucker. Oh, you want some too? Fuck you. And that's some awesome shit, man. Well, it's, it's a like- very hugely crowd-pleasing moment when Hudson kicks ass. It's so yeah. redemptive. Audiences love it, and he does die a man. He goes from this sort of juvenile kid, you know, this high school football player is how I think of his mentality, to being a grown-up and being willing to face his fate with his boots on. 
But still, it's pretty dark when the alien warrior gets its claw over Hudson's face. And I don't think he's feeling quite as heroic as he screams there. It's a reminder that this is still a very grim fate that he suffers being dragged under the floor. We see Vasquez do a lot of damage here. She blows up a bunch of aliens. Meanwhile, Burke is backing away from everyone. It almost really costs them that he locks the door behind him and they have to use their laser torch to open it. But he gets his because the alien shows up and this one appears to use its mouth thingy on him because you you hear the impact as that mouth, the mouth within a mouth telescopes out and we cut to black there. But it's pretty... You know, it sounds painful. (laughs) He gets killed by the thing that he was trying to take home. So Newt saves the group because she knows the tunnels and she leads them into this warren, this maze. And there's still the tension. Is she sure? Because she changes her mind at one point. No, not left, right or whatever. And that is a nice little grain of doubt in her mind and in Ripley's wonderful beat. And the aliens are pursuing our heroes the whole time. Vasquez endures molecular acid like a champ when she gets sprayed. Very tough customer, as we know, but she's crippled in the midst of this fight as she runs out of ammo and they get closer and closer. Gorman goes back as she's really more or less incapacitated. The grenade comes out. It looks like they're in agreement that they're going to just detonate this grenade and blow up and take as many of the aliens with them as possible. But it still looks to me that when push comes to shove, Vasquez has to fight Gorman to get him to detonate that grenade. It looks like it's a struggle. Like at the end of the day, he doesn't really want to push the button and she makes it. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's like in a moment of weakness, he becomes a brave man and then starts to regret that decision a yes, second later. <laughs> exactly. Oh, shit. I might actually have act like a marine for once (laughs) but it's again them detonating a weapon that causes the next problem because the grenade going off leads to newt being separated from hicks and ripley so they lose her she's under the floor but later they're able to find her once again the blast cutters come in handy hicks is cutting through the floor and then the motion tracker picks up this blip of the encroaching alien but if you really look at the motion tracker, it's very rudimentary technology. It's like encroaching blobs with a number. It doesn't look particularly useful, but it's certainly a wonderful device for building the suspense. As you hear that metronome pick up in its pace as the alien closes in and snatches Newt away. She survived for so long on her own, and ironically enough, by hooking up with the squad and with Ripley, she re-endangers herself. Mm-hmm. Is there something sort of morally ambiguous? about the fact that when they detect that Apone and Frost are still alive and Ripley's like, no, leave them. Like, they're dead. And then when it's Newt, she's like, no, I have to go back for her. She's still alive. Right. Well, that's a great point. That's a great point. Just to give her the benefit of the doubt, Hudson points out that uh, when they pick up their lifelines, it's very low. It's barely there, but they're still alive. Like Ripley's reacting to the fact that they've already, and she even says they've been cocooned. The presumption is that when it's new, there's still a chance they yeah. can grab her before they she gets. No, I, I, I know. I know. They have a lot more time to save Newt than they did to save a pwn. We we definitely yeah. can agree on that. I'll tell you so, what though, that uh, that tentacle coming out of the fucking water. Yeah. What I, that, that's like one of the most I, I mean, in a movie filled with awesome moments. That is such a huge, wow, dude! Yeah, it <laughs> you know? is. It's fantastic when that thing 
looms over her. It's a better version of the scene when Dallas gets it in the first one. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is analogous to that, but performed impeccably in all areas. And then Ripley loses her shit completely, which is, I think, kind of her uh, Oscar nomination moment. Uh, That's why she got the Best Actress nomination here, because she just really in a believable way seeing Newt taken there, the despair as the doll head Casey sinks into the water. Um, it's, it's, It's a really good little bit of business as Hicks Mm -hmm. tries to drag her away from this. But they're attacked in the elevator, and again, shooting one of these aliens causes acid to spray, and it fucks up Hicks really good. So he's basically incapacitated. She drags him back to where Bishop has landed the dropship, and we have the big laugh line of her saying, we're not leaving, and then you know Bishop goes, we're not? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's actually this beat where they managed to race to get his armor off before the acid shoots through into his heart, basically. Well, the, the detail, I mean, they make excellent use, better use even than the first film, of the detail that it's blood is acid. You see why that would be a superior evolutionary development. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's very much in keeping with animals that taste bad. So that, you know, bugs that taste bad so that birds eventually learn not to eat that that bug. You know? mm-hmm. It's in that vein. So they know they have 26 minutes before the installation is going to explode. And she's getting ready. You know, it's such a badass moment as she tapes the flamethrower onto the pulse rifle, goes out. Hicks says, we ain't going anywhere. He, he's a grunt for sure. He normally speaks in a grunt. But he's he's good people. He's the salt of the earth. He's going to make sure that Bishop doesn't betray Ripley and Newt as Sigourney Weaver heads off on her memorably extended search for Newt following the motion tracker. It's really fraught with suspense. When she does find the locator and it's not attached to Newt, you really do for a minute, at least I remember thinking this way, wondering, damn, it's too late. She's not going to save her. It's a dark enough movie that you don't immediately go, well, she's just somewhere else. It's such a bleak film on on so many other levels that, I mean, it creates, like, the possibility. So, I mean, when you get those beats, you buy into it instead of saying they're going, yeah, right, whatever. It's like, you're just like, oh, shit, they killed the girl. Yeah, yeah, you buy it. I mean, it it really is a credit to the, the film that precedes this beat that it has that effect. There's so many strong turns in this act three, and, and that's one of them. By having an action movie be the sequel to a horror movie, you've already lain the track that the worst can always happen. So when you get action movie beats, there's an extra level of tension that the girl might be dead. Right, right, yeah, because this is that kind of film. This is some straight up, uh, by the book, Joe Campbell in most cave kind of shit. But holy fuck, do the classics work sometimes. It's a great darkest hour moment. Yes. The structure of Act 3 is one of the more elaborate that I've ever run across, as I alluded to earlier. Because I don't even know when Act 3 technically begins in this film. I mean, what would you guys say is the start of Act 3? I think it's when Newt gets taken. Well, I mean, you could even argue somewhere between Newt getting taken and Ripley arguing that she has to go back. Because it, but it's the, the confrontation that they have with the aliens when, in, the, in the room when we lose half the cast. I think that's, that's really where it is. But Newt, 
new getting taken is what thrust Ripley back into danger. Mm-hmm. Like, she's safe. When they get to the ship, they can take off, and she's safe, but they don't have news. And that's right. what thrust her back into the into the meat grinder. In terms of filmic structure, you can't look at the page number on the screenplay. You have to go by feel and the nature of the conflict. I mean, in a lot of ways, Act 1 is 56 minutes long. Act 2 yeah. is from when they get munched by the aliens to when they fight back and get munched again, but in a slightly more heroic manner. And Act 3 is Alien versus is, is Ripley versus the Queen. Yeah, yeah, that's that's absolutely true. And even in the segue between her finding the locator and crying, sobbing, to see, us seeing Newt and what happened to her, you're still like, oh, shit, you do not know if this is going to be okay. Because we see an entombed Newt with that egg hatching. And your first thought is, of course, she's fucked, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it doesn't look like there's much hope of Ripley showing up. But they are close enough that when Newt starts screaming, Ripley can get there and shoot the face hugger as it emerges from the egg. And she has to kill two of the parental guardian warriors after shooting the baby maker in this dark nursery. And she sees how many eggs there are around them, which is another great. Oh fuck moment. <laughs> the queen makes a slightly, uh, slightly off strategic decision by sending the entire nest out to get them. So she's only got the Royal guard. Well, she's definitely smarter than the average alien because they do sort of reach a treaty of sorts in this sequence as Ripley confronts the queen, sees the egg sack, which is just so wrong as you watch this slimy thing depositing these eggs on the floor. Ripley makes a deal with the queen, basically, because she threatens the eggs. She she torches mm-hmm. one or two, and the queen clearly has her goons back off. They retreat. She mm-hmm. calls off the dogs. And then Ripley fucks them over. It's really funny, actually, because it's what humans do. And again, in light of the fucking each other over conversation that they had. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Interestingly enough, now Ripley uses Burke's guile in order to survive the sequence, because I mean, if it was just like a straight on confrontation, she would get mowed down by the Royal Guard. But she actually pulls a fast one on them in a way that the alien queen doesn't see coming because she doesn't have the guile of humanity. You know, that that dishonesty, that kind of. You know, maybe she would go back on their their little kind of head nod agreement. Yeah, <laughs> it's like exactly. I mean, they're all going to blow up anyway, right? I mean, this installation is due to be a nuclear explosion, but yeah, she's still. Purely, yeah, that's purely Ripley going. Oh yeah, fuck you, bitch. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not only that because what triggers her is that she sees one of the eggs hatch on her way out, and so maybe she even thinks, "Oh, so you're fucking me over here," you know, because it's still dispatching a face hugger. She has this annoyed look, and and you you can really see the moment she decides to set them all on fire. And it's interesting because it it is that act, that punitive act on Ripley's part that perhaps is what inspires the queen to follow her wanting payback. Oh yeah, absolutely. absolutely. They're striking at each other's children Yeah, is what happens. It's clear that Ripley destroys the alien brood and she's like, okay, oh, well you're going to kill my kids. I'm going to kill yours. Yeah. And you have to wonder on some level, I mean, I don't know if it would have mattered if Ripley had just walked out of there, would the queen have, have detached herself from the egg layer and gone after Ripley or not? I don't know. It's one of the few instances I feel when we get 
some sense for the complexity of what the aliens are capable of. Like if you have some vision of the inner life of an alien, yeah, because right. you understand this motherly instinct and that, and that, that translates into this motherly need for revenge. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I mean, there is the common ground between the species is also something that we're exploring here as Ripley is fighting their way out of here and she's whooping their asses completely. It's very satisfying as she mows them down, but one would have gotten Ripley potentially if Newt doesn't see it as they're making their way back to the drop ship. We recall their original film more literally than anywhere else, because we have the emergency voice lady start talking again, Mm -hmm. like the end of alien and mm-hmm. in my view, it's a little too much like the first one. I, I feel like this is one of those elements where it feels like a sequel trying to just one-up the shit out of the last one. And we get the same set of beats just on a bigger scale. Within this Act 3, before we even get to that, because the Queen shows up and traps them initially here before they even get back to the drop ship and but then they get out of that because they take the elevator maybe they're okay but no the queen takes the next one and comes up after them which is kind of funny (laughs) so ripley thinks that bishop has fucked her over as the queen emerges from the elevator and there's no sign of bishop the drop ship is gone and ripley is certain at this moment that history is repeating itself it's a yet another great oh fuck moment in this film not the best green screen effect in the world either when you see the uh place coming down around her ears and it looks like uh, either she's gonna she and newt are going to be burned up or the queen is going to get them and they've been abandoned and she literally says to newt just close your eyes baby you know it's awesome we really think that they are fucked but bishop saves the day The power of this film is I distinctly remember 30 years later really being like when when he shows up, I'm like, yeah, fuck yeah. It really seems like all hope is lost. I mean, the film has done an excellent, excellent job of creating a situation where they really might be fucked. And it's like when Bishop shows up, it's such a fucking win. It's it's incredible. That's why I love this movie so much. And that's why it really is, at the end of the day, what I would say is my favorite movie is that we've seen so many of these types of beats and dynamics done Mm -hmm. before and since. But this movie does them so well and Mm -hmm. so flawlessly. They work so well that they're basically the blueprint for how you would orchestrate a darkest hour moment, you know, or a big reversal of fortune within a scene. It's just, it's become textbook, but it's not, it doesn't feel artificial. It's all just, it's so smoothly executed as well that it doesn't feel manipulative. The blockbuster at its very best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, you know, I, I, well, I, when people say, well, you know, it's a popcorn movie. You can't expect it to be at all. It's supposed to be stupid. It's a summer action thing. It's like, no, motherfucker, watch this. And tell me that, you know, just because it's a big action thing with a sci-fi element, that it gets to be stupid. No, these films can be well-made. They can be intelligent. And to say otherwise is just a fucking cop-out, man, either from filmmakers or audiences. Part of what makes this moment work so well is that all the way up to this beat, you still think that Bishop might be a bad guy. Or that, you know, that he mm-hmm. might have taken off and left her there. I mean, that's the, the seeds that they've sown really starting in the first film with Ash, 
and are still playing with, with five minutes left to go in the movie, you're still not sure if Bishop is, a, is on her side or not. That is part of what makes the moment work, is that you, you still believe that maybe Bishop really did leave her. They sell their terms. They sell their beats. They set things up like it's flawless in the meticulous nature of the writing here. And we even get something with the landing gear becoming stuck on some debris as the mm. dropship takes off with Ripley and Newt aboard. And you have to think that's how the Queen got on board. So even in that little minor detail, it's it's trying to validate the logic behind the queen getting on the ship. And you have to think if that hadn't happened, maybe the queen doesn't get on. The big climactic end of the first Star Wars build to a big explosion happens. And it's a huge cathartic release as they escape this exploding planet just in the nick of time. It really plays in the theater. Again, you just cheer. They have escaped death literally by inches. And Newt says, I knew you'd come. And Ripley says, Bishop, you did okay. You really do think the movie is over unless you've seen the first one. (laughs) 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 So the queen tears him in half. And in a way, it mirrors one of the births of of a warrior because her tail pops through his chest the way a chest burster would burst from someone's chest. And it's really a gnarly and shocking moment, especially in the 80s when it tears him in half. Like, I thought that was a a really graphic and hardcore effect when I was a kid. Yeah, especially now that he's he's, uh, legitimately proven his heroism and we're completely loving Bishop right now. And then we tear that dude in half. Yeah, it's like it's such it's such. Not only just a reversal, but it's it's about as emotionally impactful as that scene could possibly be. Yeah, so now the witch, the queen is like a witch in my eyes. You know, it wants to eat Ripley's child. Uh, mm-hmm. It looks like a dinosaur, but it kind of acts like a witch, and it's sniffing out Newt, who's hiding under the floor. And it's reaching these giant skeletal hands down there, pulling them up one by one. And the next time she's going to pull that thing up and Newt can do nothing but scream. And we do get like, this is a little summer blockbustery, slightly cheesy when it, it could grab her, but then it stops to turn around when Ripley comes out with the, the power loader. But you quickly look past it because it just it's so awesome when she comes out with that loader on. I just remember people losing their minds in the theater at that because, again, the setup and now the payoff that she's got that everything is so well staged and shot in the actual fight, too. It's it's riveting. Oh, yeah. Get away from her, you bitch. It's like, dude, uh, yeah, you're you're fucking on your feet, man. It's an excellent film for really putting characters into dire straits. And so when they fight back, when they get a moment, when when they get to be badasses, it's always earned. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, get him, dude. Fuck. Yeah. My thought in this scene was that Newt has, and it it fits totally with her character. Newt has like a 
sixth sense for where there is a tiny grate into an air duct that she can sneak into. Like, she does it three or four times in the movie where everybody's like, what do we do? And it's like, look, there's a tiny opening over here. Yeah, for a second grader, for a second grader, she has a very valuable skill set. She survives as she has survived against the aliens the entire time, is is she plays to her strengths of of her small size and and her quickness. She, She is not a helpless prize to be passed around and threatened. She's not a Maltese Falcon. This character is quite capable and not just like what we're trying to protect. The Queen drags Ripley down into the airlock with it. You get that final little dark beat where you're not sure if Ripley is going to escape this, but the last thing she has to do is escape it. It has its, I think its tentacle is wrapped around her foot. And her shoe comes off, and that's what saves her, and she's able to climb out of the airlock. Thank Understated. you, Reebok. Yeah, I think it's a Reebok, yeah. Um, <laughs> the, the fanfare, the musical fanfare builds, and we know another boom is coming up. As the climactic moment happens, she gets the airlock closed. She gets her leg out before it would be severed. She knows, we know, that's it. She made it. The thing is sucked out of the airlock. And Bishop says, not bad for a human. <laughs> John, you've often used the term roller coaster in an application of this film. This is an exact representation of the emotional experience. And it is, it, it's, oh no, yeah, oh no, yeah, oh no, yeah. You know, <laughs> what a fun thing for a human being to experience. The other, John, the other moment in there that's actually kind of sneakily great is when the upper half of Bishop is clinging to the grate yeah. and saves Newt with his other hand. That Bishop, to the to the last, is that dedicated. Like you said, I cannot allow a human to be harmed. I mean, he demonstrates that as completely as any character possibly could. Even half a Bishop is worth more than one Burke. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, and there's sort of a racial tolerance theme here under the surface because we don't really have robots yet to discriminate against. But, you know, just the general. Oh, oh, but we will. We absolutely will. will. We're we're heading there quickly. But it still remains sort of a a, a metaphor for racism, what happens here and, and the ability to look past. Um, what we call right now, ironically, xenophobia, where you're just distrustful of people who are different. What we needed in the third movie was for her to actually team up with a robot, but we don't get that. Uh, I could say, yeah, this, it turns out that even artificial humans are humans, too. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. This is reminiscent a little bit of Alienation, if you guys remember that one. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, Ripley gets back into her ugly undies, and we're going to hop into those cryotubes and nap our way home. And Newt asks, can I dream? And Ripley responds, yeah, honey, I think we both can. And Love we it. have a very similar final image to the final image of the last film, where you have these sort of womb-like, almost baby-like angelic faces of Newt and Ripley sleeping peacefully together. And the music is peaceful, but haunting. It's eerie. And in, in all of its different modalities, the music really feels perfectly on point tonally. I love the score for this film. Yeah, it is um, kind of a perfect synthesis. They use a lot of music from the first movie and then lay in the, you know, the action stings on top of it. 
because we get a lot of those kind of do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do, especially in the first half of the film. Speaking of which, in Act 1, when Ripley decides to uh, leave to go on this mission, she even directly tells Jonesy that he's going to stay here, and she calls him like a butthead or something like that. She calls him a shithead. Yeah, you're going to stay here, you little (laughs) shithead. And then she goes into space for a long mission. So, I mean, yeah, cats don't live that long. Jonesy's probably dead. In the sequel... She tells the thing that she cared about in the first movie, fuck you. I don't care if you die or not because I'm going to replace you now with a human child. Uh, Ripley's arc is she makes the transition from cat lady to true mommyhood. Yeah. Well, it almost, I mean, it almost fixes the problem with the first movie where, like, the cat is stupid. Like, why did she go back? Like, why did they spend the first time chasing a cat? Where yeah. if you replace a cat with a, with a child, it makes sense. Yes. Yeah, it's yeah. infinitely more emotionally resonant for her to go back for Newt than it was going back for Jonesy. And I'm a cat person, so I. Yeah. Another way that this film has upped the ante and improved upon its predecessor. Sorry, Mike. That's how I feel. <laughs> well, like I said in the, in the first one uh, of this series, uh, the season, I should say, what we did, these two films are so fucking good that it really comes down to just pure subjectivity. True. I need to go write my um, Vasquez Ripley slash fiction. Um... <laughs> <laughs> so- or hurry up before Pandora Lancaster gets the uh, the sole rights to that one. <laughs> I'm gonna steal my salvage. I'm gonna have to sabotage your freezer, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, this has been a blast, guys. Uh, looking forward to doing it again soon. Boy, outstanding. Right, signing out. Adios, muchachos.